11.30, so apologies. No problem. No problem. Thank, thanks for that, Justin. Okay, otherwise we're good to go. Okay, members agenda item two is our briefing from the Minister of Education on assessment, restart and contingency planning. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses? Can I refer members to a briefing paper, the Minister's statement on SEA assessment and a response from the Minister on restart are all in tabled papers. In the main pack is a briefing paper from the committee clerk at page five, a response from the Minister on alternative examination arrangements at page eight, a response from the Minister on school restart and the summer programme at page 12, a Department of Education response on SEA awarding arrangements at page 17, and a SEA response on alternative examination arrangements at page 19. Can I welcome the Minister of Education, Peter Weir, MLA, Ricky Irwin, the Director of Inclusion and Wellbeing at the Department of Education, Karen McCulloch, Director of Curriculum, Qualifications and Assessment at the Department of Education, and Dr. Suzanne Kingan, Head of School Improvement Team at the Department of Education. You're very welcome. Minister, can I advise you that you would have approximately 10 minutes to make opening comments if you wish? followed by questions from the members, which obviously can be answered from across your panel. You're very welcome, Minister. Thank you. And thank you, Chair and members, for inviting me today. Uh, let me just check, first of all, you can hear me OK? We can, yes, thank you. That's OK, that's OK. Well, look, members, um, we have provided a, a written update on the Department's um, reviews. Obviously, particularly as regards uh, restraint seclusion, there'll be a specific session, I know, with uh, Ricky Irwin and Julie Humphreys, they're going to give oral evidence to the committee. And I know, obviously, as well, on that specific issue, there's also there'll be further opportunities whenever we have the committee motion. Um, I think it's on Monday of next week. Um, at this point, I suppose, uh, particularly as regards, first of all, as regards to the uh, restraint and exclusion side of things, I would, I would uh, uh, convey my thanks to everyone who has helped inform the work so far, in particular parents, carers uh, who have lived experience. And the review is complex and emotive for all involved. It will take some time to complete uh, as we want to ensure that we get it right. However, I'm pleased that we've been able to issue some clarity around interim guidance um, in the operational settings on the DE Circular 2021-13. Um, now, obviously, in terms of the greater detail on that, we'll come later on then with, with Ricky and Julie. Committee members have also received a, will have also received a paper in relation to assessment examinations for 2021 and 2022 people emotional uh, health and well-being, including schools counselling and the, the General Teaching Council for Northern Ireland GTCNI. Turning, I suppose, first of all, to assessment and examinations for 2021-2022, committee members have previously received briefings on the alternate awarding arrangements for this year, 2021. Centre determined grades are due to be submitted to SEA on the 21st of May, which was next week, for AS and A-level. Uh, and for the 4th of June for GCSEs. SIA then will undertake external moderation of the uh, Centre Determined Grades before results are going to be published on the 10th uh, of August for AS and A-levels and the 12th of August for GCSEs. Again, I would take this opportunity to thank our school leaders and teachers who have stepped forward to provide Centre Determined Grades and have done so with fairness and consistency. 
as we turn towards 2022, I made, as you're all aware, a statement to the Assembly on Monday, setting out a roadmap for a return to public examinations for all SEA qualifications in 2022. As announced in my statement, I've decided that young people will have significantly fewer examinations in 2022, and I've outlined a package of significant reductions in assessment across all SEA qualifications. A unit of study will be omitted from the vast majority of GCSEs, AS and A-level qualifications in 2022. In each qualification, SEA will select the unit to be omitted. This will provide a consistent and equitable approach for all our young people. It will also provide clarity for universities who will know precisely what content has been assessed. Unit omissions have also been applied across a wide range of SEA entry level, occupational study and vocationally related qualifications. Schools, of course, will aim to teach all of the specification content in order to support and underpin progression, but the pressure of assessment will be reduced. I want our young people to be encouraged, sorry, engaged and motivated to learn. With fewer examinations to prepare for, I hope they will have the time and space to enjoy their learning and the wide range of extracurricular and enrichment activities our schools offer. Above all, I want them to enjoy a challenging and broad curriculum which uh, supports them to develop the tools and skills they need to become independent, lifelong learners. Turning to the issue of pupil um, emotional health and well-being, the emotional health and well-being of, of children and young people continues to be a high priority. So on the 26th of February 2021, actually along with uh, a number of effectively ambassadors for uh, young people, uh, Minister Swan and I launched the Framework for Children and Young People Emotional Health and Wellbeing in Education. From the DE budget, I've made available 5 million in 2021, with an additional 4.05 million that will be available to support uh, nurture provision in schools. Minister Swan has agreed to provide an additional 1.5 million on a recurrent basis from 2021-22. Some of the programmes have already commenced or should commence over the next few months. As part of the Education Restart Programme, I've made 5 million available in 2021 to all schools, be they nursery, primary, post-primary, special schools, as well as the OTIS and youth settings to help address wellbeing pressures arising as a result of COVID. Settings had flexibility in how, how they use that money to provide uh, health and uh, wellbeing support for their pupils and or their staff. A further 5 million has been made available for 21-22 to meet the ongoing wellbeing pressures arising as a result of the pandemic. Uh, that will be subject just to the, the necessary approval processes, but should be made available. School counselling is available to all post-primary age pupils in post-primary schools, EOTIS and special schools through the independent uh, counselling service for schools known as ICSS. Since young people have returned to on-site learning, there has been an increase in the demand for counselling, but this has not currently overwhelmed the ICSS. It will also be the case that a primary school's counselling pilot will commence during the 21-22 year, subject to securing the necessary funding and approval processes, including the development of plans for evaluation of the impact, benefits of this support for primary school children, Right, and subject to the uh, and the benefits of that. Finally, just to touch on the GTCNI. 
So officials have provided oral evidence to the committee um, on GTCNI on the 24th of March. Uh, members are aware about, of the concerns about the organisation. Since then, uh, there has been uh, work done to progress uh, a independent review uh, of that. And uh, tendering exercise went out and Baker, Tilly, Mooney, Moore, or maybe just refer to them as, as BTMM, have been appointed to undertake that review. And that will report before the end of the summer. So, uh, Chair, appreciate the maybe other subjects that the uh, that the committee will also be interested in, but I'm happy to take uh, questions from yourself and others. Thanks, thanks, Minister. And I'll try to be uh, concise and prompt. I'm sure there's a range of issues that members will want to get through with you today. And um, in terms of exams and assessments for next year, 2021-22, can I ask why? you decided against a short public or committee consultation on those arrangements? I think that we have been trying to work directly with stakeholders, very specifically with um, school leaders, uh, also then uh, those involved with the workforce, but particularly young people. And I know we've had very productive engagement, uh, particularly with the, the student union. It is a level of balance in terms of the level of work that we do, the level of public consultation, I think the issue was we're, we're in a situation that, particularly for those in examination years, some are already leaving school. Schools need to be given a bit of time to be able to prepare um, what they need to do for September 2021. We'll be in a position that, in terms of timescale, for example, on the ordering side of it, um, the that CCA will be in touch, I think, at the very beginning of June with the sort of prescribed order and the, the detail in terms of, of what units of omission there's, there's going to be. So. I think if we'd gone through a further period of consultation, and look, this is always striking a balance in that, in that regard, so there's no perfect answer. I think it's a danger that would elongate the process and give particularly schools too little time to be able to prepare. And I know that possibly because the way things worked out with the pandemic last year, uh, there was a level of criticism, and maybe understandably so, that in terms of the final, final position, even as regards exams, was actually into the term before that was able to be finalised. So it's, it's about setting that balance and giving a level of a preparation time for schools to do their professional work uh, to be able to aid the, the, the students as we move ahead. Okay, and in term, briefly, in terms of this year's arrangements, do you accept that there are pupils that believe the approach that has been taken on exams this year has placed them under pressure at a time when many people have advised that the focus for school restart curriculum should be the emotional health and well-being recovery of children? Uh, look, I, undoubtedly, I, look, I perfectly accept that, that, that some students will feel that particular route. And again, the reality is there is not only is there not only no perfect solution, but to be in a situation where you move to a point at which the formal examinations are, are not there, there isn't sort of any magic ticket which suddenly means that just seamlessly people move into getting their qualifications uh, while entirely avoiding any level of pressure or any level of um, uh, of evidence or assessment that needs to be to be generated, but look, it, it's undoubtedly the case that, that uh, given where we are with the, the pandemic, yes, there will be clearly there will be pupils who will have who will have felt uh, a level of pressure. Um, to some extent, uh, you know, I think even in a normal year, a lot of students will feel a, a level of pressure on a uh, on a basis as they move towards examinations as well. So, uh, you know. Circumstances may be different, but the general tenor of things may not be quite as radically different maybe as, as some have portrayed it. Okay, and what what have you uh, done to ensure that that pressure is 
mitigate it as much as possible in next year's awarding arrangements? Well, I, I think, first of all, to try to get clarity as much as possible. Also, in terms of pressure, uh, I suppose two aspects of this. Look, I think we're, we're acutely aware, I know we'll come onto this um, later on in greater detail, that there's a need, uh, both on an ongoing basis and also a short-term basis, for support, particularly for emotional health and well-being, to try to, to ease that pressure. Some of that will come directly via the, um, the framework. Some will come via the, the COVID pressure. But it is also in terms of easing the pressure, while striking a balance of trying to ensure that we have an examination system which is robust enough and rigorous enough to be accepted by universities and be in, in, in line with other jurisdictions. Um, there has been, as indicated in the statement, um, a considerable reduction in terms of the assessment requirements for, for next year. That will um, ease the pressure. But, you know, when you're really ultimately when you're talking about qualifications, there has to be a level of honesty here which says that, you know, you cannot be in a situation in which simply all pressure is simply taken off. That's, that's just not practical in that in that regard. Oh, Unfortunately, okay. qualifications do come with a level of pressure on that basis. Okay. Are, are you monitoring the impact of assessment on the emotional health and well-being of children and young people this year? Well, I, I think in terms of assessment, I think uh, ETI will always be keeping an eye on what, what is happening. And I think they've done, for instance, pieces on... Uh, for instance, remote learning. I think some of the some of the stuff at times, because maybe it's been overtaken by other events, has been uh, has been, you know, sort of um, maybe sort of not got the same notice. I think Suzanne maybe wants to come in just on that point. Yeah, yeah, just to say that ETI are engaging with schools to do a student voice piece in terms of uh, getting feedback from from young people about their experiences this year. Um, so they're working on that. It was piloted um, a couple of weeks ago, and they'll be working on that during the course of this term. Okay. And your decision to bring January exams forward to December, is that not self-defeating? Does that not reduce the time that pupils have to prepare for subjects, particularly subjects like mathematics, that you have no reduction in content? No, I, think, look, I, think, I think the issue was we found, and all of us are, are first of all, I think we're an indication that we are, Still in a fluid situation, we would hope that there will not be any level of disruption. But to some extent, to put things, everything into January puts really all your eggs in one basket. It's also the case we should remember that, that those exams are effectively exams getting taken uh, almost ahead of schedule uh, to enable people then to be released from the point of view of where they are in, in June. And as such, there are options uh, for pupils who are doing those exams um, that uh, you know and also from the point of view of schools a lot of schools don't opt into those particular exams but uh, there's an option that if people feel that that is the, the wrong timing uh, that you know those can also then simply be taken sort of in the in, uh, in the winter as well yeah just as well okay. the mention uh chair the the unit exams that have been scheduled for january those are exams that children quite ordinarily if they're doing modular assessments would have taken at the end of year 11. Uh, so a lot of children would have taken their first maths unit or their first English unit at the end of year 11 after effectively uh, two and a half terms of face-to-face -face teaching. So now they'll be taking them after nearly three terms of face-to-face -face teaching and a term of remote learning, you know. So, um, you know, a lot of young people who would have taken these exams normally at the end of year 11 will now take them in the December of year 12. Um, and then take the final exams in the summer. So it, it's not a case of that. Another point that a lot of children made to us is they're quite happy not to have 
the pressure of studying and revising over the Christmas period. They're quite happy to do the exams while they're in school face to face, get them out of the way and be able to enjoy Christmas with their families. Okay. And I think we're quite focal on that. Okay. Can you confirm whether Z scoring will be used to estimate marks for pupils who choose to omit units or whether their grades will be based solely on exams sat? Sorry, there, there, there is a bit of a misunderstanding in, in relation to this. Like, say will, will develop, there will always be a situation where, for example, an examination situation, somebody is off ill on the day. It's not a question, I mean, it's not actually a question of, of, of students choosing to omit units. The issue with, with uh, the principal thrust of this will be that units will be omitted. It will be SEA that will determine which units are omitted. So it's not for the sake of argument. Um, I take an example on it that here is a particular course with five units um, and two of them are going to be admitted by, by SEA. It's not a question of somebody saying, well, actually, I'll, I'll only opt in to do one or two and omit the others. The position in terms of opting is that in, and I suspect this will be pretty rare, to be perfectly honest on it, there is still the, the opportunity, even with omitted units, that somebody can turn around and say, well, actually, those omitted units, which are not going to be assessed, I want them assessed for me. So it's a question of somebody opting in in relation to it. Now, SEA will develop, as happens every year, arrangements for those who, for whatever reason, may well on the day miss a particular exam and there's never a hundred percent availability you know it could be because of a particular set of family circumstances or an okay. illness or whatever okay i have a there's a couple of other issues i'd like to ask you about we're, I'm, I'm running out of time and, and oh. I, I hopefully we'll we'll see you again before the summer recess minister but uh, in in brief are we going to have a childcare strategy before the? Okay. Maybe we're on the same side on that one for once. Then, um, can I can I ask if if, 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 you, if we are if we are chair, don't tell anybody, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no use for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I can I ask if we're going to have a childcare strategy before the end of the mandate? Uh, look, I I would hope so. I mean, um, maybe I can't say too much in relation. To this. We're due. I mean. We're due because there's a paper going to the executive um, very shortly on, as, as members will be aware, maybe to give, I suppose, one level of, of indications in terms of in terms of things. Um, people who've seen the interim report of the education underachievement side of things will see that one of the critical themes of that will be early interventions. And I think that um, childcare is a very important early intervention on two grounds, both in terms of the impact that it has directly on families but also onto the developmental um, level for um, for young people. Uh, and consequently, I think there'll be a paper going to the executive very soon with the idea of hopefully around about the end of this month, the public launch of the final report in, in connection with that. So I would like to see the, the um, executive commit to, to a childcare uh, strategy before the end of the mandate. Yeah. Okay. The Assembly voted unanimously in favour to remove the exception of teachers from the Fair Employment and Treatment Order this week. Minister, I'm conscious that uh, the Executive Office Ministers, who regrettably didn't attend the debate, have the legislative power in relation to this matter, but do you do you support the removal of the exception yeah. of teachers from FIDO? Very much so. Look, I, I think that, that um, everyone particularly, uh, you know, I think that, that Maybe questionable, shall we say, that whether there was any particular justification at the start for that. Um, I would leave that, you know, that if I can use the phrase, uh, educational historians will 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 make a judgment call. And I don't think there's any justification for that. 
Uh, obviously, it is something that lies directly outside uh, my department's uh, control. But, you know, I would like to see anybody uh, in terms of the, the teaching profession purely on the basis of uh, the merits without fear of favour to whatever background they, they, they come from and that basis on it. And I suppose, to be fair, um, it's maybe a little bit disappointing across the board that as a as an assembly, we haven't moved more quickly on this this subject. Yeah. But I suppose the fact that, that, as you've highlighted, the fact that this was something that was unanimously agreed um, by the assembly shows, I think, that all parties are to a greater or less extent on the same page in this issue. Given, given a fair wind, I should be able to present a legislative vehicle to address that, hopefully in this mandate. Um, that's in my capacity as an MLA, though, so I'll not say any more than that in my position as chairperson. Thanks, Minister. Can I bring in Deputy Chairperson Pat Sheehan, MLA, please? Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Minister, I wrote to you a couple of months ago uh, in relation to increasing capacity uh, in terms of counselling in schools. And I'm glad to see that's going to happen. But you did mention that there has been an increase in demand. Could you tell us uh, how how big an increase there has been in the demand? Details. I don't have details. We don't have details of the exact amount. What what we know is, and look, and Pat, I think this is going to be. Um, it's likely. It was always likely to be the case that, given sort of the, given sort of on top of what the general pressures are there amongst young people. Um, and we've seen, sadly, that, that I mean, I visited too many schools, even during lockdown, where there's been suicides, and I think that, that that's a tragic outworking of that. As I indicated, I, I don't, we don't have the exact quantum of the hand. Was we have it? some numbers, yeah. We do have some numbers. I'll bring Ricky in a moment just for the numbers. Uh, what we would say is that at the moment, in terms of the ICSS side of it, it's within capacity to be able to deal with that. What I'm conscious as well, which is the, the case in... Um, I think we're going to be careful. It's not necessarily going to be a one-size-fits-all. Uh, but I think there has been a a feeling, if you like, at times, maybe a, I think a mistaken feeling that, oh, these are really only issues which happen in post-primary schools. And I think primary schools have felt, particularly in terms of counselling, in terms of support, that they've maybe been the poor relation in the past. I think we're determined to try and uh, rectify that, which is why I think we're looking um, this... Uh, in the new academic year to roll out pilots um, in relation to, post, uh, to primary counselling. Now, I'm conscious having, before I was minister, met with groups who were involved in counselling, they will say that that you don't simply take the model that's there in post-primary and try to uh, sort of retrofit it over, over primary schools. And it may well be that we, we have to do that. But Ricky, I think it's got the figures in hand. Oh, he's got some figures anyway. Yeah. Um... Thanks, Minister. So we've been monitoring the demand levels with the EA in terms of the independent counselling support service for schools. Uh, and at this stage, the waiting lists are not higher than pre-pandemic levels. Um, and the ICSS is managing the demand by bringing forward some um, sessions that would have been planned for the summer and providing those now. So the service is not overwhelmed by demand. And um, we're keeping a close eye on this. So the exact numbers in terms of post-primary schools would be uh, around 400 um, people on the waiting list. Um, the service tells us that this it's being managed at this point in time. Um, what we have said is that if there is a demand uh, which requires additional resource, then please let us know, and we will provide seek and hopefully provide that additional resource um, if required. But it isn't the overwhelming um, demand that uh, may have been expected. Uh, look, and it may be because I think the nature of things will be unpredictable. 
Look, I think there, there will always be a concern that um, you get a sort of form of delayed trauma with, with the, the pandemic, that you get a scenario where uh, pupils coming into school on day one, for instance, on a return, are very happy to see their... I mean, the overwhelming feeling I've, whenever I've been around schools, and I'm sure you find the same, is that the biggest single thing is probably... I mean, it's, the academic side of it is very important, but for a lot of the pupils, it's the simply being able to engage with their peers and there's a level of happiness. But what we don't know is, if you like, if that is setting up a certain level of, of um, false optimism, which maybe six months down the road, we may see some problems starting to, to arise. So it's, it, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not surprised it may not be absolutely immediate. Okay, and, 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 and I understand we can't be precise in terms of what's coming at us, but we did hear uh, the mental health champion warn about potential tsunami. And I know you've said yourself, uh, Peter, that mental health and well-being is a, is a priority as we move out of the pandemic here. But, you know, if, if we move on to the assessments, and the mental health champion advised that there should be a gradual return to uh, academic learning. But the anecdotal evidence we're getting is that schools are using these assessments much, much more than was anticipated. And that in itself is going to uh, put a lot of pressure on the shoulders of, of pupils. So, I mean, do you, uh, do you accept that, Alain, the schools to have so much discretion and around assessment wasn't the right course, uh, and particularly when we take account of mental health and well-being of children? Well, no, because like we gave guidance to, to schools. I think that if we were going to have something that was so prescriptive, I mean, in many ways, this is an idea of centre-determined grades. Actually, the problem is if you're going to be very, very prescriptive, for example, about what evidence that you're going to get, you will actually push schools probably more and more towards having to do formal assessments uh, on, that, on that basis. And I think part of the problem, particularly as regards those particular years, I think there's been a greater level of flexibility in terms of um, students who are below that age being able to, to work them back in. I think the problem in terms of the, the move on broader bit of assessments in terms of timings is... Uh, you know, given the fact that, that, that there had to be for those public examinations, for those public qualifications, and particularly for them enabled to be awarded in time, um, that there wasn't really much alternative other than movement back uh, towards some levels of evidence gathering and assessments really from the beginning of the, the last term because we couldn't turn around and say, actually, assessments would be quite useful, but there's a lot of pressure on there to do them in June because that, that wouldn't have been a realistic time frame. Now, I had pushed as part of the thing, which probably could have created a little bit of uh, of ease, um, that uh, ideally I would have liked to have seen a quicker timetable for return of pupils to school. And that would have given, I think, probably a bit more of a, a direct breathing space. But uh, I think there was a level of wariness there. And understandably, it's not my place to second judge this uh, from the, the health side of it, that they wanted this taken in gradual steps rather than, if you like, getting those... Uh, students back maybe at, at an earlier stage. I think that if they had been back at an earlier stage, it probably could have led well, to a greater period of... of, we, could, of we, could, we could talk about that all day. But, I mean, given the, the fact that you've said there has been an increase uh, in demand for school counselling services and the anecdotal that's coming uh, from students in particular and their parents about the increase in burden of assessment, I think it's something 
that we definitely need to keep an eye on. I want to move on to the Engage uh, programme. And well, I, just, I don't know whether, Pat, on that, maybe just try to interrupt you a second, but I think, I think Suzanne wanted to come in just on that on that point just briefly just yeah i just um wanted to make a couple of points just about the the assessments i think it is important to emphasize that um a lot of children felt that perhaps if evidence had been used from earlier in the course it wouldn't have reflected their ability and where they got to by the end of the course so there was an inherent danger and stress for young people in that and a lot of schools have chosen to give tailored tests on the content they've covered on the basis that children improve over the duration of the two years and to give young people the opportunity to show where their learning has progressed to. And a lot of children actually have welcomed that opportunity as well. And I know that I know that there has been pressure and stress, of course, but I think there is a counterbalance to that, that a lot of young people did not relish the thought of mock examinations from uh, last year being used when perhaps they hadn't performed to their full ability. The other issue is, I think it is important not to underestimate the sense of achievement that these young people will have when they're awarded their qualifications in August and probably important to talk to them then because last year a lot of young people when we were talking to them felt um, a real sort of sense of they hadn't, not the case, but that they hadn't earned or achieved their qualifications. And I think in terms of their long-term mental health and well-being, it really is important to emphasise that high sense of achievement that they all will have when they get their results in August and know the work and effort that they've put into them. Um, so just wanted to make those couple of points. Okay, and, that, and that's fair enough. Uh, but and, and I think it's something that uh, we all need to keep an eye on, especially if there is an increase in demand for school counselling services and if, if schools are reporting higher than normal rates of uh, 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 mental health issues. Um, in terms yeah, of certainly, certainly we'll, we'll keep it on. As, as Ricky said, we're keeping it under review. We're asking, particularly because EA are the direct interveners in that regard. We're asking them to keep us informed. If there are pressures, may well be that as a result of that, we need to seek some level of additional money to be able to support that from the the executive. It can't just be found found in house on it. So, look, we're certain. I appreciate the point very well, Pat, in relation to that. Okay, thanks for that. Um, Final question, Pat. Thanks. Yep. In terms of the Engage uh, program, I welcome the continuation of funding. But given the, the scale of disruption, uh, I mean, would it not be sensible to be a lot more ambitious? And if, if we look particularly at the Irish medium sector, where the whole uh, ethos is about immersion ed education, they have been uh, particularly badly hit by school closures because children whose parents don't speak Irish are at a clear disadvantage in terms of their learning through immersion in the language. So I'm wondering, have you any bespoke interventions uh, that you could use in the Irish speaking and in terms, I, look, I, I, mean, Pat, I, I don't have them directly to hand, but I know there has been some work done directly with the, the Irish medium sector in relation to that. Uh, and look, what we can do is probably because it's not immediately hand, we'll, we'll get to the details uh, of that or in connection. Look, in terms of the, the scale of intervention, um, I, I suppose as well. Well, I think there's, there's, there's probably two practical barriers. Um, I think that it is always the case, and I think that next year's engage will be a little bit. We'll push the boat out a bit more than what was there this year. Um, but obviously that is subject to the level of finance that we can get from the executive. 
And indeed, even though there's been a lot of money being put in across the board in terms of COVID, there's always a lot more. And we've, we've a, a long list of some things that we would like to have that haven't as yet been funded in terms of COVID for, the, for this year, but there may be further opportunities. But okay. the, other thing which I, the other thing which tends to act as a bit of a barrier, I think, on the engaged side at one level on it, principally the engaged money is largely spent with, with levering in additional staff to help with additional teaching, which is largely speaking of the substitute list. And uh, I suppose that in terms of numbers is not inelastic. I think one of the things that's maybe been slightly exposed by the pandemic um, is that there has been a perception for many years that we have a vast, vast pool of, of untapped numbers of teachers who could simply come in and do things. And perhaps from a practical point of view, it's not been uh, those who are in a position to come in and provide large amounts of full time, but it's not maybe been quite as as big as we thought it was going to be, to be perfectly honest okay. on it. Okay. Okay. Pat, I need to bring it. I need a very brief comment. Pat, I need to bring Robin Newton in, please. Thanks. I mean, we're, we're often told, Minister, we should live uh, every day as if it's our last. Uh, could, I, could I suggest to you that given the possibility that you may be in your last few days, uh, you know... In, in, in office. In office. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have an opportunity to leave a good legacy behind you over the next few days. So that's me. I would simply say the philosophy of live each day as if it's your last doesn't tend to help with business cases for the DOF, just in my experience. Well, you use your time wisely. Um, Robin Newton, MLA, please. Thanks. Thank you, Chair, and thank the Minister for again being with the committee and, and indeed also to, to the officials. Uh, uh, Minister, I, I don't really have a lot of uh, questions, but uh, I do want to say around the alternative exam examination arrangements, the statement in the Chamber, I think, was uh, extremely welcome, extremely useful uh, as well. Uh, and, and I'm pleased that the arrangements are robust um, and indeed that accepted across the whole of the UK because I suppose the worst thing in the world would be that our young people, our pupils uh, lose out. Uh, and I think that today's explanations add to the clarity of the matter and ensure that our, our young people will not uh, lose out. We do have, <clears throat> it has many, Excuse me. It has many critics, but our standards in our educational system, I think, are are, are respected across the whole of, of the UK, uh, and particularly at, at university level. I really just want to concentrate uh, on the uh, summer scheme, the restart in the summer scheme, and I know that uh, Minister, you welcomed the committee's endorsement of the summer scheme in support of our children and young people. But I just really, uh, in your letter, uh, and perhaps you can add to what was in your letter, uh, what progress really has been made in this area with uh, the Department of Health and the Department for Communities, uh, and even right down to the... Um, uh, councils uh, taking part in the summer scheme? Well, I suppose there's, there's a couple of aspects to this, Robin. Um, and again, there could be work 
uh, cooperative work, I think, is is able to to take place. I suppose in terms of the summer, there are two prongs to that. Um, there's the the kind of the school based side of things, which is well the focus, and that that's where we've looked for volunteers, and we're trying just to absolutely finalise that that out. I think we reckon there may well be roughly about three hundred schools that will have a, a level of interest within this, uh, and that will be a four, I think a four million pound scheme, which. Um, is on the basis of uh, between one to three weeks, and it will be a mixture of uh, the academic with um, some sort of fun activities on that regard. Um, and then obviously then there is the, particularly for a range of organisations, uh, the five million pounds that will be through the, the youth side of it. Now, I think as part of that, both in terms of those applying for it, we're able to work, and I know that I think there's a level of openness both at public school level and also uh, at the, the youth level, I think, for organisations uh, would probably be keen to cooperate with, with whoever is there on the ground. And I know, for instance, uh, in terms of where they are looking towards this, just to take one example, I know Mid and East Antrim Council had a meeting with uh, the mayor and some of the representatives of Mid and East Antrim Council, I think, before even any of the, the schemes were announced. I think they're keen to cooperate. So I think, you know, I think from that point of view, this is largely... De driven, um, albeit then into the, the organisations, but the aim is largely speaking to have it on the ground. And I, certainly, I don't think we're creating any barriers to levels of cooperation that, that, that would be there um, on the ground, but a lot of it will come from within communities themselves, within organisations themselves. Can I ask you, how has the scheme been communicated to the uh, school principals? Well, at, at this stage, in terms of, in terms of that, there's details have been been sought. We we sought, I feel like, initial expressions of interest. We're now trying to, in terms of the detail of that, bottom that out directly with with schools. Um, uh, and again, it is on the level of a certain level of flexibility, uh, as indicated that uh, that there will be a range of activities that will stretch. They can either do it on a one week basis, a two week basis, or a three week basis. It is voluntary towards schools, and it's very understandable that for a lot of schools, also they will take a view that. Uh, look, this has been an incredibly tough year. We simply want to get that rest and uh, recharging during the summer. That That is very understandable. So it's not compulsory towards anybody. Uh, and again, there is the opportunity for schools that they can rely in terms of those that they, they draft in, either on staff who will come in and, and I suppose essentially get paid for their, their, their time, or alternatively, for instance, on the, the learning side of it, and materials will be provided um, they can use again substitutes uh, in relation to, I mean, I suspect probably one of the advantages for all of us is that, that perhaps the amount of summer travel that would normally take place during the summer will be a lot more cur curtailed this year than it would normally be the case. I can tell you, Chair, that, uh, sorry, Chair, um, that uh, Belfast City Council uh, has indicated a very strong. Uh, indication that they would be willing to to support the scheme, mm. and and again, I think look, I think as well, what what formally comes in through funding through DE, I think there will also be other partner organisations such as the, the councils, that may well either a want to do their thing, their own thing, cooperate in relation to it, but also lever in additional uh, elements for young people as well. So, to some extent, if we take the two elements that I've mentioned that that we've managed to get. COVID funding directly through DA of about uh, about nine million between the the, the two elements. Uh, hopefully, we've been seeing a position that, be it through local councils and others, that 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 overall pot and therefore will grow. And it's not simply about 
the figure that it's attached, but every million that's levered into that is more opportunities uh, and more direct provision for our young people during the summer. And, you know, I think we'd all take a view that our young people have had a really tough time during the pandemic. Yeah, I totally agree, Chair. And I think the emotional health and well-being of our pupils uh, has to be paramount. Can I maybe just finally, Chair, um, can I ask you, Minister, have, have you given any consideration to uh, a figure or figures of some public prominence uh, being champions of the scheme? Well, I think, I mean, look, uh, we can look at that from a broader sort of PR point of view. I guess a lot of this is not so much the, the big the big bang profile stuff uh, on, an, on an own and wide basis. I think a lot of this actually, and particularly we're seeing with a lot of the good work that's being done uh, by youth workers on the ground, by um, voluntary youth organisations, by uniformed organisations, for instance, um, a lot of this is actually more about the nitty gritty that's actually happening directly within communities and what can be facilitated within within communities. And like it's noticeable, for instance, as part of the overall summer side of it, that on the youth side, yes, there are the specific um, sort of camps, uh, sets of activities, but also some of the money will also be made available to help um, increase that level of, of outreach, which is, is, is happening there, and also the work that's happening within youth centres. And again, I know there was a little bit of um, maybe a misplaced concern in that regard, but understandably that, for example, whenever the executive, we, we got agreement to have a greater level of opening up, for instance, of youth centres, uh, I think there was a, a desire which has been met that it would not be at the expense of those who are doing, and particularly where we've seen various communities in conflict in that regard, again, working with the likes of, of TEO in this as well, that anything that was getting done from a youth centre point of view or an activity point of view was not then a substitute for what was happening in terms of outreach, but actually both uh, were ramping up. And I think that's important. Hopefully we can have, from that point of view for our young people, a summer to remember for, for good reasons uh, this year. I was just going to okay. say one of the real benefits of uh, using schools for these schemes is that sometimes those hard to reach families and the, the very people you would want to be able to take advantage of the provision, sometimes, you know, through the school, they have the links for those families. They know the children that they really want to target and make sure they, they, they get them in. And they have a higher success rate in terms of, of engaging with those children. So I think there's a marvellous opportunity there through the schools network to really reach out to children who might not always benefit from summer activities. You know, I think okay. that's an I think that's an excellent point, Chair, and should be strongly borne in mind. Yeah, uh, maybe if if uh, the department could provide the committee with a bit more detail about the precise nature of the activities uh, planned, that would be great. Yeah, Can we're, I... we're happy to do so. Happy to do so. Okay. Can I bring in Daniel McCross at MLA, please? Thanks. Uh, thank you, uh, Chair. Uh, thank you, Minister, uh, and to your depart departmental colleagues for being with us. Um, there, there's many burning uh, issues and challenges, and I know um, there's some uncertainty as well as to whether you'll be minister in a few weeks or not. But uh, I know that you'll uh, prioritise some of these issues. Hopefully, to, uh, I, I, I know, I know, Daniel. Daniel, given your experience, if you want me to put a good word in for you for Ed uh, with Edwin, I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Thanks very much, Peter. I, 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 the SPAD job might be going. 
yeah, okay. in, in, in a different room, my Peter Martin has just collapsed on the floor <laughs> that, in that regard on it, but there you go. Your clock's ticking, Daniel. Your clock's ticking. Uh, uh, go no, ahead. Sorry, no Chair. Uh, uh, Chair uh, Minister, just straight into a question uh, specific to SIA uh, uh, guidance, but... Uh, the interim mental health champion made it very clear that on school restart, academic work should be phased in gradually after a recovery period had taken place. I've raised this with you before, Minister. Despite this, I've received numerous letters from parents complaining that their child returned to school. Uh, to school, it was straight into a storm of assessments at the school, uh, as the school sought to obtain evidence to provide them with GCSE, AS, or A-level grades. While both you and SIA have stated that schools are free to determine how many assessments and what type of assessments are needed, the SIA guidance you approved steered schools in the direction of a hierarchy of evidence and a preference for it to be recently obtained. Furthermore, uh, your failure to publish the appeals process uh, procedure details left schools not knowing how they could defend a great decision uh, they had made, so they uh, naturally erred on the side of caution when compiling the evidence. So if that's it, we raised this with you a few weeks, a few months ago, Minister, and, and, and in fairness, you did, you did answer. But uh, unfortunately, the reality is different. And I know you acknowledged that before. So with that said, does it not concern you that many young people return to school to face numerous assessments with little uh, to no face-to-face -face teaching before the assessments began? That's the first point. Second point is, do you now accept that your guidance was at best ambiguous and has contributed to no small measure to the unsatisfactory situation we now find ourselves in, particularly those young people? And a final point to that, uh, Minister, uh, I put it to you that once again, your muddled thinking, indecisiveness and lateness uh, of your communication have failed our young people. Now, you may think that's harsh, Minister, but the reality, that, that seems to be the reality. Young people feel completely let down again, and, and we're seeing that uh, week in and week out. Will you now accept responsibility for the hardship for our young people uh, endured? Uh, and Minister, regardless of what's happened, apologise to them for uh, all this upheaval. The pandemic's not your fault. But as minister, you could do something about this. I think. Look, I think from the point of view, I think anything that can be done has been done. I appreciate it's been very hard uh, on our young people. I'll bring in specifically on the appeals point in a moment. I'll bring Karen in uh, in relation to that. Look, as I indicated in terms of the easing um, students in on that basis, my preference would have been for an earlier resumption in terms of the, the school side of things. That was not something which ultimately was willing to be signed off on from the health point of view. And, you know, they have, to be fair to them, their overriding aim is not necessarily the educational position of, of children. Their, their overriding aim is to try to contain the public, uh, the public health situation. So that, that is understandable, but would not have been where I'd, I'd been from. The reality is that it's, uh, guidance was issued. I think the guidance did give indications, as, as Suzanne has indicated. Part of the issue is, uh, is also the case that for both a lot of schools and for ind individual pupils, assessing where they are almost at the end of the process is something that is being regarded as better than using evidence at, a, at an earlier point, both in terms of the direct relevance to where they are, but also, um, you know, all of us hope to some extent, and I'm going to be a hostage of fortune by saying this, that as time goes on, most people get better at, at what they do. Uh, now, um, I maybe sort of not say that uh, reference either you or me, we'll, we'll, we'll do a, a mutual non-aggression pact on that particular point. Uh, but there will be a situation there that, um, from that perspective, that there will be a desire to be to put in that. And we are in a situation that in terms of when things could have happened in terms of assessment, look, this is not like a scenario where there's a bit of inconvenience and somebody then takes their driving test a couple of months later 
you know, you're under a particular time frame, a particular time pressure that is there uh, in terms of that, that level uh, of assessment. And, you know, evidence does have to be a level of, of robustness. This is not simply a tick box exercise purely internally within a school, but these are public examinations. I think on the appeals point of bringing in sort of Karen just... Yeah, just to pick up a point is fair about the range of evidence that's been used. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, there was flexibility and it could be drawn from a wide range of uh, periods throughout and the types of evidence that could be used. Um, and that flexibility is really important. That information is available to the pupil. They know what's going to be used to determine their grades. It's set out in the policy, the uh, centre's policies. And we know from feedback that it is a wide range. Just on the appeals, I mean, that's done, you know, across all of, um, you know, England as well, so that there's consistency around. But the SIA are currently consulting on that post-results service and are looking at a three-stage process. Stage one is the centre review. Then if a candidate remains unsatisfied after that, he can go to stage two and the centre will submit an appeal to SIA on the candidate's behalf. And then if this candidate remains um, dissatisfied with it, they can go to a stage three, which is an exams procedures review service as well. I think, Daniel, I mean, part, part of the complication in terms of appeals, it's, it's, it's an issue which is complicates matters to some extent on the wider qualifications piece, but it's also particularly the case on that is at the heart of this is going to be both fairness and also portability. Mention was made, I think Robin mentioned earlier um, in connection with the, the importance of portability. Because it's not just what grade they will get. There will be, for instance, universities and others who inevitably will have a certain number of places on a course. And the final allocation of places will, generally speaking, quite often come down to choice between candidates who've pretty much got the same, same grade. And if we reach a point at which our students, who on a particular bit have got a set of grades and compared with, I don't know, say somebody from Bristol, for example, um, and they're saying, well, they got those out of Northern Ireland. They're not really worth as much as what we don't really regard them as much uh, as being on a level playing field. Then that would that would be very damaging. And where obviously the appeals side of it is, Minister, Minister, not, can, not, I, can I? Okay, appeals, and then just go, just bring just Daniel just back in. Okay, go ahead. It's, it's very uh, yeah, just a very big point. That's particularly important in terms of appeals because if we reach a point at which appeals are either seen to be much tougher for anybody in Northern Ireland, which would be unfair for our students on that side of things and be detrimental to them. But on the other hand, if, if appeals were um, seen as in a golfing term as simply as a gimme, that, that, and we had vast numbers of appeals being successful, then again, there would be an assumption made on a national basis that getting a result in Northern Ireland was a lot easier than getting a result elsewhere, which again would count against the opportunities for our young people to be. So it's actually one of those things okay. that have got to be entirely in step. But that means, therefore, that sometimes even in terms of both the, the range of actions and the timings are not always entirely within our hands in Northern Ireland. Okay. The, 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 Sorry, I'm going I'm to pause you. Da Daniel, let me just intervene very briefly as well here, okay? Um, uh, Daniel, you, I'll, I'll give you your time, but you, Daniel articulate the, the issue very well, Minister, in terms of concerns regards a hierarchy of evidence and ambiguous guidance, okay? Uh, you've, you've responded to, say, flexibility, portability, um, can, I, can I pin you down on this, Minister? Do you accept that the SIA guidance issued to schools in writing placed, quote-unquote, higher value on controlled assessment? Yes. Yeah, uh, bring in, yeah I think Suzanne wants to come in just now. I think the issue is that uh, the, the point that was made in the guidance 
was that evidence that's gathered under high control conditions at the end of a course is most likely to be the best reflector of the standard at which the child is performing. You know, there is no, there is no getting away from that, but there is flexibility to use other evidence as well. Um, well how, how, do you, how do you think a school is going to respond to being told that? Yeah. But the issue is, in terms of uh, the tests that have been provided by schools, these are not public exams. These are tests that are tailored to the content that the children have been taught, that are scaled back, that may have only covered one or two units. There, there is nothing intrinsically wrong with a class test. No, and I'm not saying that either, but I think, I think the minister and the department just ought to be honest and say we place the higher value on controlled assessment well, and we move on. That's fine, you know? We, there, there's flexibility there to use all types of evidence Different there's flexibility, but there's a higher value on controlled assessment. That's the bottom line. Look, we're eating into Daniel's time as well here. Just wanted, I thought it was important to stress that point. Daniel, bring you back in. Chair, you're 100% right. This is where the, the, the position has actually changed because when we brought this up a number of weeks ago uh, with, uh, the minister, with Minister Weir and with uh, uh, Justin Edwards of SIA, uh, we were told that this wasn't the case, that in fact it was up to schools to determine it. But because it the... Is, it uh, is, it is, yeah, it is. But, but, but let me finish the point. I understand you said it is. But the difficulty is because the appeals mechanism hasn't been published, it has left school leaders in a situation where they're basing uh, their decisions on the safest possible evidential base, which unfortunately is at the very top of that table, which has 10 items on it. It is the scale, in my opinion, one being the strongest evidential base and the eighth point down, which is performance in any uh, class assessments uh, as the weakest. So therefore, teacher principals have been left with no option but to go for the strongest evidential base for which they determine the grade. So in fact, it's not up to schools at all because this has hamstrung them. Okay. Well, no, I think you may, you may be... Daniel, in relation to that, there are a range of bullet points in that, but they're not put in a, they're not put in order in that in that sense and on, on that basis. But I bring oh, I bring Karen in, sorry, I think wanted to come in. Uh, we need to move on from this point as well briefly. Okay. Go ahead. But I think it's it is very clear about what schools have been asked to do. That that their grade that they're going to give is based on their professional assessment of the evidence standard at which the student is performing. So when it comes to the appeals or when it comes to the moderation process that there is, it's the pieces of evidence that have been used to determine that grade that will be supplied to SIA and they will be doing exactly the same thing. They will be looking at, does this evidence reflect the standard required at this grade? So it's the evidence that's put in front of them. And we know from, you know, if you look at school policies, it's a range of evidence yeah. that is being used. It's not- Okay, so you, you just, you, I, I think, sorry, so I'm just gonna come in. You, you disagree with our assessment that you place higher value on controlled assessment. That, that we're not, I don't think we're gonna square that circle, yeah. Daniel. Daniel, yeah, final, you, final yeah, question. We are gonna square the circle because it's written in black and white in their own guidance. But you know, the, the first point, uh, uh, for instance, which, which I would consider one of the strongest evidential bases, which unfortunately principals are forced to uh, consider, uh, s clearly states, when taken under high control conditions where the public health situation allows, these assessments will be a good indicator of the standard of strong performance. Yeah, but hold on, of, hold course, on, of course, like, of course, course Daniel, there's, there's a good yeah. indicator. Yeah. I could sit on this. I could sit just wait, pause, pause, pause for a second, please, pause for a second. Let the minister respond and I'll let you come back in, Daniel, okay? I have to make the second part of the point because it doesn't make sense. Okay, hold on, right. If you go down then to the very bottom, and I appreciate the minister said that this isn't a scale, 
But if you go to point eight, for instance, performance in any class assessment taken throughout their study, it clearly states this, cons this may consist of a variety of evidence types produced under different conditions. And here's the key point. Evidence of this kind is unlikely this is unquote unlikely to form a strong evidence base on its own which means which means that schools couldn't consider it, but hold on minister schools couldn't consider using that point because you haven't published the mechanism for appeals which means that they're stuck and, with and I have, look daniel I, I have consistent look first of all in terms of the list of the of the points within that they're not in a pecking order i could for the sake of argument list the full nine members of the education committee I could list your name first. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Okay, I I, you Minister, Minister, I'm going to I'm going to stop you here. Point, I'm going to I'm going to stop you, please. Is, appeals appeals are tied in with the national position to try to make sure that that uh, they are there. Of course, what the, the critical words within that sentence is on its own, and the more robust the evidence that can be provided, the stronger okay. that that anybody can can stand over. And okay, of course, okay. control yeah. assessment is a good way. But it's not necessarily sense the only way. Suzanne, no, uh, you've, you've hit, well, sorry, sorry, I'm going to have to stop us. We're really over time here. Daniel, you've, you've not used a great example there, okay? There's CA assessment guidance, first published 9th of March 2021, page 7. An assessment with a high level of control will have greater value, quote yes. unquote. Okay, I'm going to yeah. pause us on this line of questioning, okay? Um, I, need to, I need to bring in Robbie Butler, MLA, please. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. You really didn't need to bring me in there. I was enjoying that line of questions. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, okay, guys, uh, I've got two questions. Um, one of them is, is, is slightly different to what has been talked about so far, um, but this does affect uh, pupils that would be in examination year. Um, it's with regard to post-16 opportunities within special schools particularly. I want to ask you, Minister, has the COVID pandemic and the subsequent failure to be able to effectively uh, area plan um, and provide places um, for post-16 education opportunities for children, either with a, a, a statement or certainly those within a, a, a special school. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, okay. yeah, I'll bring in maybe Ricky. Robbie, you're just a little bit, I think we got the gist of that, you're a wee bit faint just there. But, okay. Yeah, thank, but I think, yeah. Thanks, Robbie. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand the question. So can you just repeat that? Is in relation to the impact that the pandemic has had uh, on placement of children with statements who are uh, post sixteen. So yeah, so, so basically, I'm thinking this, it's more specifically in around special schools, and obviously there's consultations out of area planning consultations out, but there's area planning was also an issue pre pre pandemic. So there's going to be um, a number of pupils okay. who either haven't been able to take GCSEs this year, and particularly in special schools and some uh, mainstream schools. Um, so there is an item I think on on our paper today where it is supposed to talk about uh, children that won't be able to sit GCS GCSEs this year. Um, and I'm looking to see what the impact of the COVID pandemic and the failure to be able to effectively area plan um, to support those pupils. And if there are contingencies in place for those pupils, uh, Ricky? Yeah, OK. I mean, I think that's an issue we probably have to come back to you on in, in terms of a more detailed response, Robbie. But certainly from my understanding of dealing with the EA in terms of placements, for children for this September, particularly in special schools, that um, there, is, there is a general pressure, but there hasn't been a particular issue that has been raised in that nature in terms of being able to transition um, pupils, say, from uh, you know 16 into um, year 13. Um, 
that is that has not been highlighted as a particular issue um, to us at this time. And, and certainly from that point of view, if, if I mean, in terms of examination arrangements, the whole purpose and sorry qualification arrangements as well, the whole purpose of, of where we've been with qualifications, leaving that aside, is to enable children to progress. So I don't think there will be anything that will act as a barrier to them no. progressing within education in that in that regard. Indeed, what we have found in the broader level, I'm not talking special schools in general, but because of particularly last year and we anticipate this year as well, that the, the more generous grading arrangements will actually mean that it, it has led to a shift actually to more children staying on directly post-16. So uh, if there has been some any set of circumstances where anybody has been at age 16, for whatever reason, has been prevented from gaining a qualification. And I think, I, I can't imagine there, there, there would have been anybody, I don't know if Suzanne was looking at. I don't know, maybe if it's a situation of long-term illness or something like that, that's, you know, preventing the child uh, progressing. And it would be the usual arrangements there that apply, where the parent, in conjunction with the school, decide the best way forward, you know, where a child has a long-term illness and they can't take public examinations in a normal, you know, sometimes those children might repeat the year, for example, um, and then access, you know, once their health is better and then access the qualifications at the end of the year. But without really knowing the specifics, I don't know that we could provide I mean, much comment. Robbie, if, there's, if, if you're coming across examples of that, please yeah. get it through to yeah. the department no. because we're not particularly getting that as a barrier present on it. But yeah, if there are individual cases or more on a more cohesive basis on that, we'll be happy to... To, to tackle that, there shouldn't be any level of barrier to be honest to progression. Grant, and, and listen, this, this isn't this isn't me suggesting anything that has been the case with the EA or the department, but I'm wondering just, um, and there are a couple of constituency cases that I'm dealing with with regard to um, some pupils who will not get the chance to sit GCSEs, and obviously that's a that's an issue that, as you've said, the teachers, the schools, and the parents can work out. But I'm just wondering if there's a shortage. Uh, for uh, post-16 places in special schools, which has been identified in some of the, the you know, the previous uh, reviews, if that is a barrier, whether it's a subliminal barrier or, or not, and I'm genuinely not <laughs> suggesting anything. I'm just trying to bottom out. No, I know. I, 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 yeah. I know you're not you're not questioning yeah. any motivation in relation. No, I think across the board there isn't. I know that there is, as part of the wider strategic review of, of area planning for particularly for special schools, there is considerable merit. We we have a number. We have, as not unsurprisingly, given the nature of education in Northern Ireland, kind of a bit of a mixed economy there at present. Yeah. Um, and I know that traditionally what we've had is a number of special schools which uh, make provision up to the age of 19, and there's few then historically have been up to the age of 16 in that, in that regard. And I know I think as part of the wider area planning idea, would be much more to move to a closer to uniform situation where there is that provision up to... Three to, to 19. Three to nineteen, so that there can be that seamless uh, side of things. But I, I think that's more, both in terms of being able to take a, a longer term provision for that, but also ensure that there is uh, a full equality and adequacy of provision. Of, but I, I'm not particularly aware of, for example, somebody reaching the age of sixteen at present and having, because there is the opportunity for any child at special school to remain on. That it's it's not a question of well, you've reached this point. There isn't really a place anywhere for you post sixteen in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I think the EA has just finished a couple of consultations in this um, space. Robbie, one on specialist provision and mainstream area planning framework, and then one on special schools area planning framework. So, the department is expecting uh, a report from them quite soon in terms of uh, strategic area planning for both 
uh, of those issues uh, and that will inform um, the delivery going forward. But the, the basis of the special school plan was age 3 to 19 provision. Okay, Grant, uh, two questions, Chair, if I'll rattle through them quickly, if that's okay. So just to stay with regard to um, special schools in particular and, and the um, counselling and the sort of the wellbeing piece, um, of, and, and reading the pact that that, that is the, the case, and so in AOTA settings and in special schools. Um, just trying to drill down on that a little bit further in terms of the detail, I don't know if you can, in terms of the provision of that, I would imagine that there would be a, a, some level of specialism required possibly in there, um, maybe for more sort of complex um, cases and stuff. And um, I know the chair was at a, a, a MENCAP event a number of years ago when they revealed the statistics of the hidden mental health issues behind you know young people who have either a disability or a, or a learning um, disability. Um, do you know anything about that, Grace? Yeah, I mean, I think we've recognised that in the wellbeing framework. Uh, so the idea is that the individual projects, some of which have already started, um, and some of which will come on stream hopefully for the next academic year, um, will be tailored to the particular schools and the particular needs within the schools, um, Robbie. So we have teams in the EA, but we also have teams in that will be working with um, or from the trusts. Uh, and these are groups of people who will already be familiar with the needs of some of the children in the special schools particularly. So um, it will be a tailored approach. I mean, I think the, the other point to be made, which I think is it's quite a good uh, cocktail for 21-22, which is we have the various programmes that will be there under the emotional health and, and wellbeing framework. And because I suppose this is the first full year of it, I think there's a lot of good work that's gone in. A lot of it's quite tailored. Uh, you know, will it mean, I suppose, as we're constantly evaluating that, will everything be perfect in year one? No, it might well be that we actually see particular ideas more successful than we thought it was going to be. It needs to be expanded. And maybe some, something else doesn't quite work out as well. But I think the other thing, which is quite a good cocktail, is you have that element of it, which to some extent, if we use the phrase, is coming more or less from the top down. Mm -hmm. But you also then have the £5 million in emotional health and, and well-being, which is effectively... <laughs> across the board on a pro rata basis which will be decided on the ground by schools so they'll be able to tailor stuff from the ground as well as stuff coming from the top down but so that I think could could quite provoke quite a good good symmetry and I think okay. that, again we're, we're not we're not that precious that we, we believe that there's no learning to be done it may well be that some of the money then that is spent on the ground directly by schools they will find ways of spending that which then turn out to be very very productive in that regard and if there's any learning that we can do from that. I think that that can be used to adapt uh, any actions that we take in future years as well. Okay, thank you. And this fi very final one, thank you for, uh, for this, Chair. Um, a growing number of parents um, have contacted me uh, with regard to their, their sons and daughters um, who are deeply upset and feel let down that their daughter and son may not get into um, their school, not only of choice, but actually when they look at the schools that they... This, I'm talking about, sorry, po uh, post-primary transfer here. Sort yes. Of, uh, okay. So we've got now pupils who perhaps over their first choice of four to six schools are not getting those schools. And that's obviously a fallout of, of, of the, the, the transfer to sort of issue and stuff. Is there any ongoing work yeah. to create extra spaces for some of those pupils in their schools of choice? And I'm thinking of, of a number of in, uh, uh, individuals who uh, it is genuinely quite uh, worrying to see what impact is, is happening within uh, the, the house, actually, not just the, the, pu the pupils, but the parents, uh, and also the fact that some of these children will absolutely... I mean, it's just where they are academically and stuff, it's just... It's, a, it's kind of a... Yeah, look, I, I would make, make two or three points. Look, I'm trying, without opening up wider debates in, yeah. in relation to this, look, the absence Pro of... Probably best not to. 
No, okay, look, okay, let, let me put it this way. Irrespective of the differing views, if I can put it that way, around academic selection, the absence of academic selection within the criteria this year has had an impact and a skewering of where people are seeking places. I think that can probably be said reasonably objectively, and we've seen it in connection with that. And I suppose in particular will mean that because academic criteria cannot be taken into account, there will be, for instance, some pupils who will have missed out on a particular school that they feel under different circumstances they, 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 they would have got, trying to put that in as neutral terms as possible. Yeah. What we have got is that we are fairly close to the, the end of the initial process of, uh, of sorting. What I would say, to be fair on that, is each year, well, first of all, we, we try and respond as much as possible where there are individual pressures in areas by temporary variations. Uh, and that try to be done in a fairer way as possible because it can't also simply be used as a device by some schools just to gain as many pupils as they want at the expense of others. So it's, it's got to be about a level of genuine need. At the end of the exercise, um, and the other thing with temporary variations is it's not a, right, whatever happens by the 30th of April or whatever happens on the 30th of May, that's everything. So there, there'll always be a little bit of a, a shakedown. What we have found, uh, to be fair, this year is... There will be at this stage a number of pupils who are still remain on place. That happens each year. Um, to some extent, actually, I was surprised that while the, the process is not absolutely completed at, at present on it, I was surprised at the numbers who have been left unplaced as of, uh, you know, the, the latest figures aren't actually a lot higher than... Because I, I would have thought that the some of the changes this year would have been much more of a, of a disruption. Now, maybe because we've headed off some of that with with temporary, temporary variations on it. And I would say the other thing, to be fair, which will also mean that things hopefully will be able to be delivered a little bit quicker and any other interventions uh, quicker, is that the computer system, as opposed to simply shuffling about between schools the bits of paper, have actually speeded up the process. I think Suzanne wanted to come in just directly on that. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're well over time, so if we could keep it brief, thanks. Thank you. It was just to say, Robbie, there is a high level of parental anxiety because in a normal year, <laughs> particularly with uh, schools that would normally use academic selection, parents would have a fair idea whether their child was would be getting in or not. And I think because they're not using academic admissions criteria, parents have a high level of anxiety when in reality, you know, they feel maybe only brothers and sisters will be, ex you know, they won't get past that criteria. The, the reality of that may be quite different. And I think some of those anxieties will ease when parents see, because the reality is, there's the same number of places in the system as there is any other year. So okay. it's the unknown, I think, is causing quite a bit of anxiety there of how, it'll ro how the okay. emissions criteria is going to And we're, and we're looking, looking as a result of what's there, not names of that. If, if, we can, if we can actually uh, let parents know, if you like, what, what, the, what the result of the process is, uh, that can be brought forward. I think we're looking to see if that can be brought forward a bit so that people can at least okay. learn about it. Because, yeah, it is. Okay. As much as anything, sometimes it is the result, sometimes it's the uncertainty yeah. that can be the major problem in that regard. Thank okay. You. Okay. Thank you, Chair. I, I will respectfully challenge the narrative that the, our approach to post-primary transfer is ever based on fairness, choice, or clarity, and move on respectfully. Um, okay. okay. William Humphrey, please. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning to the Minister and officials, and thanks for your time. Could I just support the point that Robin Newton made earlier on about champions? Robin and I have had meetings with the EA and uh, Belfast City Council around this, and I take the Minister's point about those involved in ongoing work. 
uh, as someone involved in the youth uh, organisation myself. However, I do think a marriage of both of those things would be excellent and there needs to be a joined up approach uh, between the, the department, the EA, the Department of Health, Public Health Authority, um, communities and local government. Um, I listen carefully in terms of, uh, Ricky, what you said about um, the, the counselling services available to schools not being overwhelmed uh, and really no different than perhaps before COVID. Let me tell you, the principals in my area before COVID were pulling their hair out and having to spend frontline money on buying in counselling services that they couldn't get covered with the budget they had for counselling services. So, I, I, you know, if it's still the same, it's not a good place we're at, I have to be honest. And so, therefore, when you talk about 400 uh, young people on a waiting list, how long do they sit on the waiting list? Um, William, I don't, I don't have that information, but obviously we work very closely with the EA who manage the service. It's a post-primary um, service, uh, and they're telling us that they're managing the demand at the minute by bringing forward sessions that have been planned for the summer and using them now. Uh, if there's additional capacity that needs to be created, then um, we will work with them to provide that additional capacity. If some of the principals um, that you're referring to are our primary school principals, that is perhaps a, a different um, issue. Uh, and as the minister mentioned, we're looking at the provision of the primary school counselling no, this year. No, 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 let me make it clear. These are, these are post-primary principals, and I'll come on to this, the primary principals in a moment. These are post-primary principals uh, of, of a number of schools in North Belfast that I would, I sit in a group that's chaired by one of my colleagues, Alderman Brian Kingston, called the Shine Forum, and there are a number of principals there. And my visits and meetings with schools across the constituency, th th I have picked that up, and that's not something which is new. I picked that up over the last yeah. number of years. So I, I, we weren't yeah, in a good place before COVID. I can't imagine it's any better, but I would like the answer, if you would furnish us with the answer, of how long a child waits on a waiting list when there are 400 of them on a waiting list. Well, look, we'll get to that information, William. I think, look, I think the point, I suppose there's, there's two points in, in relation to that. And look, if there's also, we look whether, I mean, it's never to know whether anything is entirely universal or whether there's particular build-ups of pressure within geographical areas. So we look to see where things are specifically within North Belfast and get back to you. But look, it's also the case, I suppose, there's a slightly more, there's a different generic point. Is there, and as part of this, as we're seeing, some of the interventions that we're looking at, is there more needs to be done on mental health in particular and counselling? Yes, uh, there is. And is there sort of a pressures that have been there pre-pandemic? I suppose where we're doing the comparison is that what we're saying in, in terms of the levels of requests for demand uh, pre-pandemic compared to where we are today, uh, there doesn't appear to be a a massive shift in terms of numbers. That that's one of the thing. I think that's probably largely factual in that regard. Now, you know, if what we're, if what is being said is there's an insufficient level of provision before, and there's still an insufficient level of provision, I think there, there, there's a reasonable of argument in relation to that. With, with, with respect, Minister, we'll know the answer to that when we know how long a child, the 400 children, sit on a waiting list. You know, if they're sitting well, for a week, well, that's well, one yeah, thing. If they're sitting, well, sitting for 26 that's, weeks, that's a different thing. It is, it is, but that's also true enough. And think that is also the case, frankly, as well, with a whole range of aspects. I mean, look, we're in a, a country also that, in terms of what can be provided, uh, in terms of any levels of, of intervention on mental health, on a range of health services. Yeah, unfortunately, I get, because I get that, that, I get that. That's why I'm, I, I started off by supporting Robin Newton's. 
uh, assertion about a joint upness across government and local government. Can, can I then ask in terms? Okay. Can I then ask in terms of the primary post the primary school um, counselling pilot that was mentioned in in your in your initial remarks, Minister? Yeah. Could you put some more meat on the bones about that, please? That sounds. Well, the, the, the idea. I'll bring in Ricky in a moment or two. But the, the idea in that is to roll out a program from uh, September onwards for the, the full academic year. The availability in terms of the pilot, I think, would be for uh, all schools. I think, as I said, there has been call it a little bit of an old-fashioned or maybe wrongly focused approach. Uh, in the past, which has said be it mental health problems. Now, there may be an argument that particularly with teenage years that there can be a particular pressures that are there, but almost there has been in the past, maybe sort of not enough focus in primary schools have been they felt to be a certain level of, the, of the, the poor relation. I think it's not necessarily, as we will roll out things, I don't think it's simply taking what is there in post-primary and simply mirror imaging it, because I, I don't think you're necessarily getting like for like, but I'll let Ricky sort of explain that more in terms of the... Uh, William, we're working through the business case options on this one. So one option is, as the Minister has said, in terms of a similar model to the independent counselling service, which the EA currently provide for post-primary. But another option is that we, we know that some primary schools are already using some funding that they have, for example, through extended schools to provide counselling, which they have procured directly. So... That is potentially another option that we need to explore, where we provide funding directly to schools uh, and they um, uh, appoint providers to provide counselling for their schools. But we obviously want to make sure that the providers of the counselling uh, are appropriate. So we're looking at the detail of that now. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, the nature, nature ultimately of a pilot is you do uh, what is being done with will be done within 21, 22. You know, can you guarantee that that the precise model that will be used in 21, 22 uh, will end up being the best possible model. No, there's nobody, that's, that's the whole point ultimately of a pilot, which would mean then you take whatever <laughs> learning is there from the first year. Because this is all money that in terms of the emotional health and well-being, but that should be baselined each year, it also means that, that it shouldn't necessarily just simply be a, here's something that happens and it disappears on that, on that basis. So we need to actually ensure that this has got right in the, in the, the longer run. We also need the money. We also need we also need further support from the executive in terms of the money for it. If we're being honest on it as well. Yeah, well, you see that that's why, I mean, Mr. Murphy, in various questions in in the house around around education, has said if if, if bids are put in. So I hope whenever bids are put in, because this is hugely important. I uh, met with the Greater Shankill principals group and was um, concerned to hear um, primary school principals talking about young children who uh, were, were in, in need of professional help, some of them coming from very difficult homes. Uh, and I therefore think that uh, early intervention, because it is more effective and is more cheaper, that would be a good uh, investment for Mr. Murphy to invest in and provide you with that funding. Uh, Minister, I also wrote to, as you know, are aware in terms of coming out of pandemic, and I thank you for your, um, your very prompt response, in relation to the uniformed organisations, uh, you will know that uh, I've been in contact with you before. The uniformed hub has been in front of this committee before, which represents the Boys Brigade, the Girls Brigade, Scouts, Ulster Guides, Scouting Ireland and Catholic Guides. Uh, and obviously they feel that they've been left behind again in terms of the the easements, in terms of regulations. Can, can I just implore the, the department and uh, the EA? to ensure that uniformed organisations are, are considered whenever these decisions are made, because I, I am grateful to the response 
that that you you sent me uh, from officials and and I appreciate as I've said your quick response around it but um, the difficulty that we have as someone who's involved in uh, currently in organizing a camp which had to be pushed back from June to September these things are not organized in weeks you know uh, uh, these things take an awful long time to to, to happen uh, there are cost implications a lot of these camps are funded by the groups or the or the children the families themselves they don't have government interventions uh, although I welcome your the, opportunity of getting some um, summer youth program funding that, that has come out that's extremely welcome now thank you for that but we we do need early decisions and we need them to be these organized to be kept informed because it is um I, you know the, the the reality is um clark is is william breaking up for everyone yeah yeah, look, uh, look, okay, uh, Minister. Sorry, uh, William, you're breaking up a wee bit there. Bring the Minister yeah, in. Thanks. Just, yeah, I think just what William was saying is need early decisions and indeed um, you, the likes of uniform organisations being kept into uh, keep very much at the forefront of our minds. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with any of that. What I would say is, and again, this is where, be it around restrictions issues, uh, this is not a lack of the department or indeed others from within education saying, uh, you know, in any way holding anything back or wanting to do that. There is a process where in terms of all elements of restrictions uh, that they are put into the, uh, the task force and results are, are done. And at times when we have found this where we have eventually got movement uh, and at times maybe a differentiation has been drawn between what is happening at a either a schools level or a youth level with what is happening in the wider bit of society as regards uh, restrictions. Those are not because we are putting up the barriers. At times, it is because whatever the decisions are there on behalf of the, the wider public health task force. So if there's, if there's issues around what can be done, for instance, outdoors, it is not because we haven't actioned or agreed or pushed for things. It is because then it may well be that a particular set of terms in the same way, and I know, okay. I, I suspect I would agree with the, the chair in relation to this, we eventually got things moving in terms of uh, inter-school sport, for example. I, I think I suspect it may be one area that myself and the chair are very much on the, the same page on. You know, my yeah. view is that that should have moved ahead yeah. exactly at the same time. That was not our blockage. Yeah, very briefly, just... William, we're well over time. Briefly, please. Um, yeah, no, I accept the point you're making, Minister. That's why whenever we had the Uniform Hub presentation in front of committee i did make the point and propose it committee that day that we write not just to yourself but to the health minister because i absolutely understand that it flows from the restrictions and the guidance given by both the chief medical officer and the scientific officer but i'm just making the point these are volunteers and therefore they're they're not going to be as agile necessarily as as those who are have, have got paid officials working for them in other organizations thanks chair okay Thanks, William. Minister. We, we, we will also be making the, the case on their behalf at times as well in that regard. Okay. Yes. Yep. Um, Minister, just, just to recognise that, obviously, you and I will disagree on, on multiple issues, but you, you, have, you have responded promptly and positively in, in relation to that inter-school sport issue, and you might be aware I have a request for a, a meeting with you in relation to some of those um, organised uh, or, 
uniformed organizations, outdoor activity centers as well. So maybe you'll respond yeah, positively. No, I, one, I think, other, one other, I minister, I minister, one other minister, minister, one other brief issue. Um, I want to give you credit on. Um, I've I've represented requests of teachers and third sector organizations such as Bernardo's for the extension of the independent counseling services to primary schools for a number of years. And I know that's not precisely what the pilot is proposing, but um, credit where credit is due for bringing that pilot in relation to primary school counseling forward. People mentioned um, positive outcomes uh, you can um, refer back to if should, should if and when you complete your term of, of office and the pilot that you've initiated in relation to primary school counselling is is one of those positive outcomes. So I, I thank you for the action oh, that you've thank, taken on that. Uh, look, I would say, Chair, I'll be happy to meet you as guard. I suppose the only issue just in terms of meeting uh, is I know that, again, stuff has been put into the broader bit of the, the, the task force in connection with I think off the top of my head, there's a separately, I'm due to be down... May well think be at Crawfordsburn uh, or I'm trying to remember. I'm due to be on either with Scouts or Girl Guides. Relatively, so I think some stage next week on that. That's on good. That basis. That's, that's, that's so positive. Maybe that we get. And look, I think. And to be fair, I think to colleagues in health on some of the issues. Sometimes, to be fair, it's they don't always absolutely understand precisely what's happening on the ground. I on think that that's basis, fair enough. Yeah. Rather than that's you know, and, and to be fair to them. On these things, they're trying to cover a, such a wide range of issues that you know, yeah. they're not going to be experts in everything. I think that's important. Why that engagement is so important, so that we can understand yeah. the the nuances of how things are safe. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, okay, Minister, three members left. I do my best to get through them here. If you can give us some flexibility, thanks. Uh, Nicola Brogan, MLA. Thanks, Chair, and good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you. All. I'm having a few. Um, Connectivity difficulties, so I'm hoping you can hear me. Okay. Um, okay. First of all, yeah. First of all, um, Minister Weir, um, I'd like to welcome your development on the childcare strategy. That's a really welcome announcement. Um, as you know, myself and the chair have both been advocating for a childcare strategy now. Well, me probably not as long as him, but um, we're that, that, that is good and um. Just to be clear, that, look, I, would, I want to see a childcare strategy adopted by the executive during this term. I was, from that point of view, there's not a specific announcement at this stage on it, so just in case there's any direct misunderstanding. No, no, but, but you brought a paper to the executive. On that, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I know that you brought a paper to the executive, yeah, but that, that's, that's um, progress, you know, so I'm, I'm pleased with that. Thanks for that. Um, I'll just move on then to the... Um, you announced this week about the CR um, grading arrangements. I've been contacted by parents who, in their own words, said they're furious. Um, their children have, um, in this case, they've completed their AS grades and are furious that these are not being included with their final A-level grades. So would you accept that um, many young people will be under even greater stress and this will cause more anxiety because of more pressure then put on the final exams for A-levels? A couple of things, about this, and I'll, I'll bring in Suzanne just directly on this as well. Whenever we consulted, we found there was not obviously a uniform view in connection with this, but for large numbers of the majority of parents, they actually accepted they felt that because their child had been particularly disrupted during their AS uh, year, and to take AS into account for A level would actually disadvantage their pupil, uh, their 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 children. It was also the case from a pure practicality point of view, 
And again, when we talk to the likes of the secondary school uh, union, that there, there, there is a basic problem with conversion in terms of fairness. And I gave the example of somebody who would be just either side of a grade boundary and maybe a couple of marks a point apart in a normal set of circumstances. If because you, the only way you could do that would be here's a particular mark for an A, here's a particular mark for a B, it could be quite a large distance apart from somebody who actually otherwise it would be a mark or two apart. But I'll bring in uh, Suzanne, who's maybe more directly involved in some of the consultation on this. Yeah, uh, thanks, Minister. Um, it's just to say, Nicola, um, we, we had taken on board feedback last year from parents and pupils around it, and we asked SIA to model a whole range of options and scenarios for ways in which the AS grade could contribute to the A2. We looked at a 40% contribution, 20%, 10%. We looked at giving, uh, you have to apply a proxy mark to the grade. We looked at the top of the grade band, uh, the middle, the bottom. But ultimately, it was unfair to young people. If you were a child who'd, who was on a strong B, for example, as the minister said, Suddenly you're in a position where we give you a proxy mark. You're 60 marks behind your contemporary who was only slightly better than you. Normally, um, there's 60 uniform marks within every grade and there'd be children spread out through the hundreds of marks. If we give a proxy mark for those five grades, every child in Northern Ireland would have been placed in one of five marks. And it actually then would have made differentiation next year very difficult. But ultimately, we understand Yes, children are worried about a return to public examinations next year. They are worried that their grade would be determined on the A2. But none of that would justify us doing something that's actually unfair and inequitable to individual young people. And what we need to do is build up young people's confidence over the course of the year. Make sure that they feel confident and resilient when they're going in to do those exams and that they feel well prepared. And part of the minister's announcement was the removal of units at A2 so they don't have as many exams to prepare for and that they will have more time and space in the curriculum to build up their confidence. So, of course, acknowledging that it's not ideal, we would have wanted a normal scenario where the AS could contribute. But given the awarding arrangements this year, it isn't right to do something that's unfair on the individual child. Yeah, listen, I agree. I know there's going to be different viewpoints on that there. Um, but it's just, I think it's important to raise that there issue that so many um, children will be feeling additional stress because they feel it all lands on these one set of exams. So like, I do understand that. I take your point. Um, I just want to move on then, Minister, to Sure Start facilities. Um, I'm sure you'll agree with me that... Um, support provided by Sure Start um, for children and families from disadvantaged backgrounds is kind of more critical now than ever. So a number of families have contacted me again. There's been two main issues that's been um, drawn by attention. One is about um, the full resumption of Sure Start services. So um, really for group activities to start again and about um, rural families who um, can't get get access to Sure Start because they don't fall within the catchment area. So, have you any um, considered any kind of change in policy to widen out the catchment area so that rural families yeah. can be included uh, in this? Well, look, I think. So yeah, supposed to just take those in reverse. Look, they'll always be kept under review. What the the, the breadth of Sure Start to be, it is something that is very advantageous. 
I wouldn't necessarily. I think the problem on the rural side of it is if 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 the boundary points, if I can put it that way, are um, and it's it's a little bit of a blunt tool. Are uh, call it sort of need and socioeconomic need. I think we've got to be slightly careful that even if there was additional funding to be able to widen this out, that you don't particularly pick for the sake of argument. Right here is somebody who is qualifying, who may not be as needy as somebody at, at present. What what we would have with Sure Start that where people can take from you can get clearly within. Um, neighbourhoods which don't maybe have an enormous amount of difference between them within a one town. Some will qualify and some won't. So I would be wary of a situation which necessarily said, well, you're going to qualify because you're from a rural community as opposed to that maybe, but in terms of criteria, you wouldn't actually the same level of criteria as people who aren't qualifying at present in, in some of the towns as well. So it's, it's about a level of balance, but also on the basis of Sure Start. And we've, we've, there's been additional money put into the Sure Start uh, but, you know, again, as with a lot of things, if there was more financial support, yes, there's more that, 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 that could be done. Specifically on the, look, I, I think you made a very valid point in terms of the, um, the wider group activity. And I suppose, as with a lot of things, sometimes with COVID, the things that are most advantageous uh, are sometimes the things which have to be most restricted. There's been a paper put into, uh, we put into the executive, we got as far for on the on step one, if you can call it that way, by way of sure start on the child base, but in the first tranche, there's a separate, uh, the separate submission now has been put in as regards the full resumption. That will be, I, I believe, is likely to be considered very soon. I hope to see movement on that, on that, on that soon, because I think it's critical. You're, you're right in terms of the impact directly on families and on that basis. That's got to be the next logical step, and the sooner that can happen, certainly from my point of view, the better. But obviously, it's dependent upon health. Uh, and the wider executive agreeing that as well. Well, hopefully, yes, Minister, we will um, see some movement in that because, as we say, we do, we do, know, do know what's critical. Um, finally, I just want to touch upon something that wasn't actually in your briefing, but um, it's relationship and sexuality education. You know, we have a brief, we had a briefing last week on the topic. Um, and we have having many recent discussions and we know it is an important topic. So I just want to get your views on it. Um, do you think it should be modernized and made mandatory and standardized? Um, or what, what, where, where do you stand with um, updating well, the curriculum? Well, look, look, there's work. First of all, it is, man it is mandatory in that regard. All schools have to do RSE. Uh, I think on the basis, I think particularly where the focus is, and I know Myself and Minister Long, indeed, the departments have agreed to work very specifically on some of the Gillen um, review bits because I think particularly issues around uh, some of the threats to women that are there, be it issues around domestic violence, trying to break cycles are, are critical. I think that's where we're looking particularly at, at elements of uh, uh, of content side of things. Look, there's no doubt that there will be there are aspects of this in terms of where people see uh, particular issues have that have sensitivities and that they work through. But CCA provide uh, materials. Uh, there's also, generally speaking, that making particular curriculum uh, matters compulsory uh, and particular aspects of things, the, the worldwide experience overall is not necessarily that those actually lead to improvements in the quality of that. But I know that the, the, the hub that's provided by CCN and funded is working consistently on, on materials in that regard. Yeah, just saying, Nicola, one of the strengths of our system is that flexibility that we can 
use the non-statutory curricular guidance to provide contemporary and up-to-date advice and resources for schools. The statutory content is the statutory content, but because it gives flexibility, we're able to build on that and provide a whole set of modern, up-to-date resources at short notice, and that there's no time lag, for example, between an issue being identified as important and needing to be delivered in schools and us being able to develop resources, whereas if that needed to be put in legislation, that obviously takes considerable time. So we've got quite a flexible system as the Minister. I mean, I'm not, not specifically talking about RSE, but to take up Suzanne's point in the broader sense, I think our system has a level of agility to it. Uh, and I think that if we try and across the board around a range of subjects. I don't want to specifically talk about RSE in that regard. If we try and straightjacket everything, that that can create problems as well. Now, I, I gather, appreciate in terms of what the level of compulsory quality of, of things is always going to be an issue of dispute in that in that regard, but I do see a lot of merit in our okay. system having yeah. a level of agility. Listen, I will want to come back to Nicola, yeah, just I appreciate that point, um, Minister. Um, but the, the flexibility there that's shown means that on the ground, people, children aren't getting the RSA that they need and deserve. And that's from different um, surveys that has been carried out, that that's what's been shown. So it may be okay. flexible, it might work for other things, but it, it isn't, doesn't seem to be working in this case. But thanks okay. very much for that there. Thanks, Nicola. Thanks, uh, Minister, just got Justin McNulty and then uh, Morris Bradley. Justin? No problem at all. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Minister. Thank you, Ricky um, and Karen and Suzanne. Um, Minister, I just want to start off, as this is maybe the last time you're before us, so I want to start off by, by thanking you, um, by uh, applauding you for your, for your endeavours. You've always been genuine. You've always been upfront to me. You've always been engaging. I think your heart's in the right place. You're genuinely got the best. I'm glad. I'm glad, Justin. I've got you fooled in that regard. <laughs> no, I, I feel genuinely feel you, your heart's in the right place, Minister, and I think you deserve credit for trying to navigate these these waters in very very challenging times. And I think you deserve credit for that. Now you've made mistakes. We all do, and um, I just want to thank you. I think there are others around the table today who feel they can do a better job. Judging by the line of questioning by Mr. Humphreys, maybe he thinks he can do a better job, but nevertheless, we'll move on. Um, Suzanne, you mentioned that young people may not be uh, experienced a high sense of achievement this year after they're receiving their exam results. And that, that's that's worrying. Um, I feel they should. No, no, sorry, sorry, you last must have. Year, last year, some young people. Sorry, just... talking about twenty twenty. Sorry, yeah. Okay. Was, sorry, Suzanne, maybe just clarify. Maybe I think you picked up wrong just in that regard. Yeah, it, just last year because they were cancelled. Justin, you know, some young people told us that when they got their results, you know, they felt strange because they hadn't been through any form of assessment process and they felt you know maybe that the results didn't belong and that's not the case and their 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 parents and their schools have tried to reassure them as much as possible but my point was this year children will have a sense of achievement because um of the assessments that have been carried out okay well they should have an extraordinary sense of achievement because of what they've gone through and uh, this is the biggest disruption to education since the second world war for teachers and pupils so they all to collectively should have an enormous sense of achievement in terms of navigating these waters as you mentioned earlier um, on that though what is your sense kids have returned to school now um full time you know for a number of weeks um what is your assessment of where kids are at? how are children how are children and young people how is their well-being how's their physical well-being how's their social skills how are the medals, medal, uh, how are the medals, how are they, how are the teaching, 
we're forced. How are the staff? How are everybody at, with things going back to the to new to the normal as as normal can be in schools at the moment? Oh, okay, Justin. I mean, look. What I would say is, look. I agree with you first of all in the earlier remarks about um, that they should be proud of of their achievements. I, I think what we were saying is that we got feedback with some people saying they felt in a strange place, but you know, I don't think that was that's something ultimately which is justified. I think it should be. Look, I, I think from that point of view, uh, I suppose it is it is difficult entirely to generalise because you will get. You may well get two pupils who live next door to each other and will have a completely different perspective of, of where they are. What I generally find on school visits, uh, it is certainly not universal, and there's a need, obviously, for that level of, of intervention. Children have shown a high level of resilience, I would say, um, throughout the, the, the pandemic um, in relation to that. I think that, in general, what I've picked up on is that Children are very, very happy to be back in at school. Um, again, without being cynical, that, that may be less to do with the, isn't it great, I've got these lessons. It's more actually the freedom to be able to see their their friends and their peers. And that's overwhelmingly been the, the answer. Does that mask underlying concerns in terms of emotional health and well-being? Yes, it, it, it does to some extent. And, and that's why I said it, it, it may not necessarily be where children are on day one, it may be where some of them will be on day six months plus one. And that's why I think uh, we've, we've got to be keep a close eye on what the, the situation is. It's why in particular next year, that particularly in terms of emotional health and well-being, that it's, 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 it is actually, it was intended anyway, but effectively the rollout of the framework is critical next year or the, in this, this year, I suppose, in that regard. And also actually the additional money that, that, that we're getting in terms of the COVID side of it because it's not simply, even, even if everything goes from now into the future utterly uninterrupted, it is about actually trying to deal with some of the scars that are there uh, and, may, and may not necessarily surface on, on, on day one as well. Yeah. Okay, that's thank you. Uh, Robbie mentioned shared education and there is concern with the drop of funding, a drop off in funding for shared education that uh, momentum gained across the north may be lost. There is a very successful shared education project going on in South Armagh, um, which is benefiting a small school, Newtown Hamilton High School, in terms of uh, access to subjects at GCSE. A drop in funding might uh, conspire to usher in the closing of that school. Now, that school is uh, one of the fulcrums for the Protestant community in South Armagh. Um, what, are your, what are your department's plans for shared education, Minister? Well, look, I think we want as much as we can, as soon as we can, to start to, to ramp that up. Look, I think I mentioned earlier, and we, we saw it, um, potentially, funny enough, there's an analogy with some of the work that's happening in terms of SureSart. Some of the most advantageous stuff, um, and it's a counterintuitive thing, become the most difficult under COVID. So particularly, I, I, I think from the point of view of, of access around um, sort of curriculum delivery, for instance, I think that, that is critical as we move ahead, and that happens as much as possible. I think one of the problems is that, that the, the focus under COVID has been, uh, I suppose, have everybody hermetically sealed and in a bubble. And that obviously runs in a, in a directly opposite end sometimes to some of the direct shared educational uh, positions and that. But the sooner we can move uh, away to having that, I think there are big educational advantages. And I, I were just, strictly speaking, I don't think I've been there this time as minister, but I know having visited uh, Newton Hamilton on a couple of occasions in terms of the school. I'm, I'm aware of the, 
the very good work and the very good integration that they have with, with surrounding schools. And, and uh, yeah, it's just Justin to make the point that there is a difference between the shared education funding and the, the cooperation through the entitlement framework for delivery of public examination courses. So where you know funding is available through the entitlement framework funding for that, and that has been permitted um, on the restart in terms of the 2020 restart, for example, where children were accessing qualifications in another school, that kind of cooperation was uh, permitted to continue. And that funding is available through the entitlement framework. And that's, it's slightly separate from the cooperation around shared education, if that makes sense. Okay, thank you, Suzanne. Um, Minister, what, what are your plans for? Are you planning in South Vermont two post-primary schools that are suffering chronic oversubscription? So Paul's Bestwick in particular is 500 above its approved enrolment and uh, because of the temporary variations. They've negotiated that with your department over the last three years. Um, and this is from catchment area of only four parishes, which is extraordinary. Now, St Paul's High School in Bestwick is an extraordinarily good school. Um, I've spoke with uh, a fond attachment to it. My, both my parents taught there. Um, but what are your plans for area planning? And uh, have you communicated with CCMS with, in regard to this? And I know that other schools are frustrated given that you know there's a huge uh, popularity uh, piece with St Paul's um, all the kids want to go there because it's such a good school it's detrimental to other schools in the area who are dropping numbers well, well look I suppose there's two points in relation to that uh, we're in the process of, of introducing um, and this is both downwards and upwards and it's largely speaking seek the, the, the agreement of the individual schools a, a certain element of right sizing of where you've had schools that for instance either for a number of years um that their numbers do not reflect or anywhere close to where their cap is an opportunity for them to be able to uh move to that closer to that number from a practical basis uh it is not if you like an expansion per se but actually where i think we have because of the dp process uh a slight at times element of of unreality if you like that 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 what is there and has to be met year on year by way of temporary variations so that is being put in place directly speaking as regards to the broader bit of area planning uh, we are trying to act in the broader in a broad sense as being a driver towards uh sectoral bodies and sectoral bodies also to cooperate in relation to it i think the slight degree of complication particularly if we're looking at individual cases is if there was to be a for example with a school a large-scale potentially expansion or uh, in the sort of a, in the long-term side of it that would require development proposal as the way the process goes the initiators of that have got to be really the likes of CCMS or the EA it's, it's the managing authority that initiates and I suppose where we are slightly restricted is as a department and specifically the minister have then got to give a verdict on a particular school so it's uh, off the back of that but because we are effectively the judge, we can't then either be in the prosecuting or defending counsel as well in that regard. So I think we are encouraging, we're trying to get, uh, and some of it was a bit slowed up by the pandemic, we're trying as much as possible to press um, uh, within the education authority in particular, but also then the sectoral bodies in terms of in terms of area planning. But we can't turn around to them in a specific case and say, uh, for goodness sake, do X, Y and Z about St Paul's because the people who actually then legally give the verdict on what happens to that will be the department and myself on it. So that, that respect, okay. that could be a bit of frustration for people on the ground as well. Final comments, Justin, please. Thanks. Yes, one more question. Uh, 
fantastic to see inter-school uh, sports returning as a 31st of May. Fantastic. Uh, kids will be just dying to get that competitive streak back in their bones and bodies. Um, the school's sports programme, which we've talked long about, Minister, has resumed. The coaches are back in schools. Brilliant. The FA coaches and the GA coaches are back in schools. However, they still have not received their letter of law from Minister. Uh, I'm not sure. I think I think I, we, we'll check it out. It should have. I mean, the, the the amount of money that was in budget last year, I think, is is there for this year. So that should have, Justin, that should have issues. But we'll, we'll check to confirm confirm that. Sometimes the as of yesterday, the it, wasn't, it wasn't there, Minister. So they will appreciate that being received. Okay. Well, like, yeah. I mean, look, like, I think there there isn't. Let me put it this way: there isn't in terms of what level of funding was there last year going into this year. Let me just indicate: there's no. Uh, uh, there's no problem with that, and there's no change to that. So, if, if formally they haven't been been written to, we we will chase that up in relation to it, Justin. But they you can definitely <coughs> a phone call was made to them. So I yeah, apparently Karen has Karen indicated that it's understood that they certainly a phone call had been made to them to, to let them know in relation to that. So maybe just physically speaking, whether there's a letter or not, we can oh, check okay. that. We can check that. Check that out. Thank you for your okay. today, folks. And so whatever happens over the coming days, I wish you well for the future. Thank Thanks, you Justin. Justin. Thanks, Morris Bradley, MLA. Thanks, Chair, uh, and thank you to the Minister for appearing in front of the party this morning. Uh, a lot of important points have, uh, have been made so far, Minister, uh, and have been covered by yourself and your officials. But, Minister, there have been pockets of COVID-19 outbreaks in schools in my area recently, uh, which has led to pupils missing school while in isolation, uh, and not only pupils, but their parents as well, which is a knock-on effect if parents have to isolate or take time off work themselves. So, Minister, can I ask you how successful has the use of lateral flow devices that have been used to test 12 to 14 year olds been? Uh, and will they also be used in the rollout uh, across any summer schemes that may happen? Uh, well, I think the, the issue in terms of, I suppose it directly as regards to the, the summer schemes, it's about availability um, that will be there. Um, that's what I suppose largely being, that's something done at, at home largely, I think. Uh, there, the health people are also looking to see whether there should be a level of expansion to a slightly younger age uh, on that basis as well. Largely speaking, uh, and I suppose it's difficult to slightly 100% disaggregate everything, but overall the mitigations that have been put in place have been largely successful. Now what you will get, and this is fairly inevitable COVID, you will get particular spikes in particular areas. So you'd mentioned, Morris, that, that very clearly you will maybe get say, within your area, certain classes, certain schools, where there's maybe been a fairly heavy um, level of outbreak. And in other schools, other schools actually throughout this have largely gone untouched uh, as well. What I would say is we get, um, and I think it's published as well, weekly uh, attendance data, uh, which indicates those who are off. Uh, now, what I would say in general is that, that what happens in schools, largely speaking, in the broader sense, reflects what's happening in the community. What has been noticeable, even at times where the overall community figures have tended to be of a similar nature to what was there last autumn, for example, the general level of disruption to schools in terms of the numbers that have been, been off have tended to be, I think, a lot lower than they were last, last autumn uh, on that basis. And that does suggest that the level of spread with, that is happening is less, and it may well be that the lateral flows are identifying people at, at an earlier stage in that regard. But that's that's more, shall we say, a feel for it based on where we are with the statistics. And I think fairly consistently that those who've been off um, 
either because maybe a parent has had this or they themselves have tested positive. I think I'm right in saying that that, is, that has gone, generally speaking, below 1%, I think, since there's been schools uh, resumption. Now, the direct impact of lateral flow will probably be less as we move ahead in the next few weeks because a lot of those, particularly in years 12 to 14, having kind of completed their studies are now effectively on home leave for the rest of the of the summer. So we won't see that that maybe picked up to the same extent in that regard. But it does appear that lateral flows have in general seem to have had a positive impact in that in that regard. Okay, thank you very much, Minister. Minister, I, I just I mean a lot of people I think this COVID is with us for some time to come. Uh, and like all viruses, uh, mutations can do and have occurred. So without wanting to be a prophet of doom, will this become this pandemic to return with force, will teachers and school staff be given priority vaccination? And will plans be in place to work closer with the Department of Health to ensure this happens? It was a high priority concern this year, and I wouldn't like it to be a high priority concern. It's not yeah, look, yeah. from, from that from that point of view, I would like to see prioritization. I would like to see a, a scenario of specifically regard special schools. I think to be fair to them, there was opposition to that from health. Uh, probably particularly as the driver in terms of prioritisation of vaccination has still been at a national level in terms of JCVI. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the levels of uncertainty on it, Morris, yeah, you're right in terms of nobody knows what happens in terms of the, um, the variations. And I suppose really the best case scenario is as a society living with the virus being, being there, because I, I, I don't think it will be best case scenario a number of years before we see complete elimination. I think one of the areas in terms of vaccination, uh, and I know at a national level, there is um, there's effectively, while no decision has been taken, there is provision ready for probably a, a booster job, particularly for the over 50s uh, in that regard. Uh, I know that you and I would maybe have some years to come before that would apply to us in that, in that regard. Um, but uh, absolutely. Uh, I think one of one of the levels of uncertainty, I, I think, in terms of vaccination, I think there's a lot more preparedness and a lot more ability to do that. Is uh, it is at this stage, I think, from a scientific point of view, uh, as I understand it, there is not really the knowledge of how long vaccinations um, will will impact successfully in that regard. I think it's known that, uh, in general, in terms of vaccinations, that. Uh, the older you are, the quicker they wear off in that regard. I think that that may lead to a driver in a lot of the vaccinations, also because the levels of deaths tend to be higher on a high concentration on the, the very elderly in that regard. But I have seen speculations, but I understand there's no decisions being taken that, that they are, um, if you like, the reserves are sitting waiting that if, if needed to be done in the, in the autumn or we've seen, I think, um, some of the booster stuff where there's been the, the Indian variant, for instance, in that, in that regard. But I suppose uh, we will continue to make the case for education in that regard, but decisions uh, may not even necessarily be taken around the executive table in relation to that. It may be sort of in the wider context of what is regarded from a, uh, from a virus point of view from, from JCVI. Okay, thank you, Minister. Thank you, Chairman. Thanks, Morris. Uh, I think that's us, Minister. You've you've given us additional time here today, for which we're we're very grateful. Um, I, I I'm I'm reluctant to have to wish you well because I genuinely don't uh, have any information to suggest that I should be doing that, uh, <laughs> Minister. I genuinely don't. Um, in in case that um it it is 
uh, merited. Um, can I can I thank you? Um, and uh, I know you and I. Uh, well, I know I robustly disagree with you and your party. To be fair, on a, on, a, on a wide range of educational policy issues, we've we've worked together on on many others, and I have the utmost respect for anyone who steps forward for public office, indeed the high public office and the challenging public office of education minister. So thank you in, in that respect. Okay, look, thank you and thank you to the, the committee. Now, I, I know that in a minute or two, I think Ricky and Julie will be with, well, Ricky's obviously here. They'll be then sort of plugging in on the on receipt and seclusion. So look, folks, I'll, I'll leave you at this point on it because I know I'll, I'll have to head on relatively shortly to um, have okay. some appointment in, in other parts of Northern Ireland today. So thank you very yep. much. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. Okay, Ricky, do you want a short moment to change setup there? Um, Chair, yes, we actually need to change room. Uh, okay, so I, I can I can deal with the other committee uh, business matters and buy you some time that way. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks, Ricky. Okay, Clark, uh, can I ask if you have any uh, actions to summarise further to that briefing? Yeah, um, Chair. Uh... Can I also, sorry, Clark, can I also ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and to add members back into the spotlight? Thanks. But ask, sorry, again, Clark, uh, but ask members to make sure that they mute their microphones to avoid background noise. Thanks. Okay, so um, uh, early in the briefing, um, the department mentioned uh, that ETI was getting feedback from schools about remote learning and um, members are very pleased to know that those papers have been received and are in next week's committee's pack, committee pack already. Um, the Minister um, uh, has brought a paper to the Executive um, and would, said he would like the Executive to commit to a childcare strategy before the end of the mandate, so it may be that the Committee w would like to put that in their welcome of that in writing. Um, the, uh, also, um, the Committee commended the Minister for the Primary School Counselling Pilot in respect of post-primary schools, then um, the committee was concerned at the number of the 400 uh, pupils who are on the waiting list. Um, Clark, could I could I uh, amend that? Just could we, could we get more details on the primary school counselling pilot, and just perhaps ask if it's known at this stage what schools that will include? Sure. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah. So, in respect of the, the post-primary schools, um, the, uh, the committee was concerned that the department seemed to be saying more, more resource will be sought, you know, if urgent. Um, it seemed to the committee that 400 people on a waiting list was already um, urgent. Um, that was, there was helpful clarification about this idea that delayed trauma can occur and um, that those numbers may go up, but perhaps the committee would want to urge um, for for a bit now, really, for um, for more resource, um, rather than be on a you know ready to respond yep. basis. Agreed. Yeah, thank you. Um, so then there was a lot of discussion about um, the committee's uh, information that there's been a high resort by schools to controlled assessment, and that that's. Um, a function of the absence of a confirmed appeals process. Um, the Minister was saying that appeals are tied into the national system and that's why the uh, process hasn't been forthcoming. And um, so that wasn't really, there wasn't agreement in the end of that discussion. Um, 
members can take that up again with CCEA, um, who are um, going to plan to come to the committee on the 2nd of June. Um, and it would be very helpful, I think, if the appeals process were available at that point. Agreed. Um, so I think we could make that point to CCEA. Um, Agreed, yep. Yeah, thank you. Um, then um, the committee welcomes that um, people are coming to a sense of achievement after this long, difficult year when they get results in August. Um, that would be a high point of the year. Um, the deputy chair uh, was asking about Irish medium sector interventions. Um, and you know, was there adequate resource to create immersive learning environments? So I think we might want to follow up on that just in writing, because uh, the department did uh, concede that there weren't as many teachers available for substitution and, and building resource um, as they had expected um, during the pandemic. Um, Robin uh, then um, was discussing the uh, joined up approach. Um, that he would like to see to the summer program um, and uh, the committee i think wanted to have more information about the precise nature of activities that are to be enjoyed during the summer program yeah yeah agreed um then um robbie had a point about um yes. to the committee um, about one of Robbie's questions on them um, where the EA uh, can provide a more detailed response about questions of transition. Um, you know, children who are looking to, it looks like they might be leaving school without qualification. And then also um, the minister said that there, you know, there might be a need for an audit of adequacy of provision um, for special schools um, towards the end of that academic period. And so in respect of area planning, which came up to, uh, two or three times, came up in Justin's questions as well, um, officials have offered to do a briefing on the area planning on the 23rd of June, so we'll come to that later today in the forward work plan. Um, so really those are all the points that I would have suggested the committee would reflect in correspondence to the Minister okay. and CCEA. Okay, members, members wish to add any other questions? Yeah, Daniel, you want to come in there? Yeah, it's just it just related to the procedure. So a lot of this confusion is emanated around this. It should have been published in March, uh, from my understanding. Now, if, as suggested today, that we're facing a change of minister, I'm sure the first action that the new minister is going to take is look at this. We're, we're going to be faced with considerable delays and issues in relation to this very important issue. And as a result, young people, children are going to be affected. Uh, the audio was quite difficult to pick up there. Daniel, uh, do you want to repeat or summarise very briefly? Someone else is on mute. Sure, bounce it yeah, could I, yeah, could I check? Everyone is on mute, please. Try again, Daniel. Yeah. I ha the, the appeals process should have been published in March, and it hasn't been. So that is a difficulty in itself for obvious reasons, as articulated to the minister uh, uh, ju just there in that session. Uh, and, and it's resulting in principals or school leaders making decisions that aren't, unfortunately, in the best interests of the child, but ultimately they're forced into a position of having to keep themselves covered. So my concern is it's absolutely vital that this uh, uh, process is published as soon as possible by clarity to ensure that the principals can make decisions uh, that best reflects uh, the way forward uh, in the interest of children, but also to ensure that they have a level of protection as well, so they're properly covered. 
But if, if, as suggested in this committee meeting today, and this still hasn't been published, that there is going to be a change of minister very soon, uh, I'm, I'm sure that the top of the priority list isn't going to be this issue. So as a consequence of that, I have serious concerns about the impact this is going to have on those young people. Uh, in fact, it, yeah. it could be as bad as last year if something isn't done about this urgently. We're now into May. We're nearly yeah. into June. It's eight, it's near, it'll be eight weeks past before it's even maybe on the okay. even coming June. Yep. So the, the, the urgent need for publication of the appeals process has been prioritised and pushed forward by this committee for some time, agreed. Um, and I'll come to that with the clerk. Um, as far as I'm aware, um, uh, there is no announcement in relation to the minister, so we maintain our focus on the issues at hand. Clark, in terms of the Education Committee pushing for and seeking that publication of the appeals process, you may have already referenced there, but just to recap, uh, see, we are uh, inviting SIA to the committee as a matter of urgency in order to address that issue. Can you remind us the date of that meeting? Yeah, so the, the CA were due to come later in June and the committee wanted to see them sooner than that. So they're now coming um, on the 2nd of June and I'll speak to um, uh, the new chief executive on, on Friday just to, you know, uh, talk so about the uh, two, so, two weeks, that's a yeah. fortnight, Clark. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and as, as I say, we, we have sought uh, that appeals process as a matter of urgency. Um, and I agree with you, Daniel. It's clearly playing into some of the other issues as well. Um, okay. Um, any other questions members wish to add to our, our actions? Just, I don't really keep stressing this point, but this committee war, the former chief executive of SIA and the current minister of the real challenges that are faced by schools and uh, providing. Uh, the uh, awarding qualifications to these young people. We were told weeks, months ago, that there was nothing to worry about. We were told in a video clip that appeared between the minister and the former chief executive of SIA that everything was rosy in the garden and that people were exaggerating and there wasn't extra assessments and people had nothing to worry about. But in fact, today, uh, we're told that, yes, uh, there may be an issue here uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that the minister has recognised it. Backtracked slightly towards the end of the of his uh, uh, conversation, but I think this is going to blow up very badly. And I have to stress this, like this committee mentioned this months ago. Um, we're sitting now, like this is really urgent. It can't even wait two weeks, to be honest, because if we wait two weeks, it'll be another two or three weeks before anything's done about it. And it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late. Yeah, so, no, I, I'm not, I, I mean, obviously, CA can, and the minister can publish appeal process details more promptly than two weeks. Um, but that scheduling is our questioning um, of of that process. Um, I mean, uh, our, our business, uh, I think we've that invitation was to invite CA to attend as soon as possible, Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and look, I, I agree with you. The, the committee has consistently made the case in relation to um, the guidance, the the video, uh, I fondly refer to it as the fireside chat video clip, Daniel. Um, it it I, it was bizarre. It it was ambiguous, as as you have said yourself. The the written guidance that I quoted earlier placed a, a higher value on controlled assessment, and it it has created a dynamic of um, of 
immediate assessment on school return. The Secondary okay. Students Union of Northern Ireland raised concerns about that. I, I don't think that I don't think the committee could have been clearer in its expression of concern for this approach. But the department, and as the minister, as you have seen today, is adamant that that the approach provides the necessary flexibility um, for uh, pupils to um, have a balance with emotional health and well-being and with results. We we yeah. disagree. I think it's quite clear we disagree. Yeah, and, and Chair, you, you, you hit the nail firmly on the head, but for the sake of public record, it's vitally important that we point out that these young people are being forced into controlled assessments into these conditions and circumstances where they had no face-to-face -face, uh, learning, where education has faced huge and considerable disruption, where there hasn't been an equal playing field, where other children have had advantages of having extra tutoring, have had access to remote learning, others have not. Others have uh, lived in a house, maybe with five siblings, with no access to devices or even broadband uh, and have had no face-to-face -face learning. This is a disaster waiting to explode. And because the burden is heavily focused on uh, the need for controlled assessments, uh, that is going to disadvantage quite a lot of people, particularly children from uh, socio-deprived backgrounds. That, that, that's the reality. I, of what I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think we, we disagree on the substance. Um, we might need to take care with some of the language that we're using in relation to this. But I think the committee has been robust, has been clear in expressing its concern for the approach that's been taken. Um, and the department has maintained its approach throughout. Um, we'll continue to make our position clear. We've asked SIA to attend at the earliest uh, possible date. Uh, and SIA and the minister, are, are, we obviously hope, will publish that appeals process prior to that evidence session we've scheduled for the 2nd of June in order to allow us to test its appropriateness. Okay, members, if there's no other uh, questions or actions, uh, we need to move on. Um, the next agenda item is uh, agenda item three, chairperson's business. Can I refer members to a letter from Kelly Armstrong, MLA, tabled today, providing an update on her draft integrated education bill. Uh, it is uh, Kelly's hope, it's my understanding, that that, uh, draft, that, that integrated education bill um, will be considered by the Assembly uh, shortly, uh, and the Education Committee um, will be um, ready to uh, respond uh, when we're given the opportunity to do so. Agenda item 3.2 uh, is our informal meeting with Apple. Can I inform the committee that members had an informal meeting with the Apple education team on digital learning? A note of the meeting will be distributed to members in due course. I think one of the most important theme emerging from the, the meeting was that uh, equal educational opportunity will require equal access to digital devices and internet connectivity um, in order to achieve that aim. Um, it was a, a useful meeting to learn about some of the approaches that are being taken in other jurisdictions such as Scotland in order to achieve that aim. So the, the note will issue in due course in order to inform members and the committee's approach on that particular issue. Okay, members then, agenda item four is draft minutes. Can I refer members to draft minutes of the committee meeting on the 12th of May at page 24 and seek your agreement that the minutes are complete and accurate record of proceedings agreed? Members content to come off mute to say agreed, if agreed. 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 Thank you. Agreed. 
Thank you, members. Okay, then agenda and five matters arising. Uh, there are no matters arising as far as I'm aware. Okay, then agenda item six is our briefing from the Department of Education on restraint and seclusion. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses? Can I refer members to Clark's brief? Uh, Department of Education briefing paper on restraint and seclusion and a copy of interim guidance in tabled papers. Can I welcome Ricky Irwin, Director of Inclusion and Wellbeing at the Department, Julie Humphreys, Head of Additional Educational Needs Team at the Department of Education, Shauna Collinson, Interim Assistant Director of Pupil Inclusion, Wellbeing and Protection at the Education Authority, uh, and I think Andrea Kelly, Head of Primary Behaviour Support and Provisions at the Education Authority also. Can I advise officials that you have up to 10 minutes to make an opening statement followed by a question from the members. Hand over to Ricky. Thanks. Thanks Chair. Can you see me and hear me okay? Can indeed. Okay. Uh, good to see you all again. Um, so thanks for inviting us today um, to update you on the review of the use of restraint and seclusion in educational settings and to inform you of progress since our last attendance at the committee on the 24th of February. Committee members will be well aware of the background of this review and of the urgent need to ensure children and young people, parents, carers and the school staff who support them are provided with clarity on the use of physical intervention and restrictive practices. We have continued with our engagement on this issue and made further progress which I will um, now outline. The reference group of associated professionals and statutory bodies has now been established and has held two meetings chaired by the department. The group has agreed to share with us their views on the use of restraint and seclusion in educational settings and any emerging proposals for change that they may have. The working group continues to meet at bi-monthly intervals and as part of its role is currently examining how engagement will be progressed and the position uh, uh, taken in neighbouring jurisdictions. A commitment has been included in the department's 21-22 business plan that this work will be completed by March 22. In advance, we expect that new guidance will issue uh, in the forthcoming academic year. All emerging proposals, including any that require legislative change, will of course be subject to the Minister's approval. Officials have undertaken significant engagement with parents and have met with Parent Action, Positive Active Behaviour Support Scotland, also known as PABS, and the International Coalition Against Restraint and Seclusion also known as ICARS. These meetings included evidence from local parents with lived experience. Parents with lived experience supported by their parent advocates made, made sorry, presentations to a joint meeting of the working and reference groups on the 11th of May. The department continues to liaise with these parents and their advocacy groups and has opened a two-way channel of communication. Their voices are central to this review. You expressed concern at the oral evidence session on the 24th of February about the passage of time since schools were provided with guidance. The department has now issued interim guidance in the form of DE Circular 2021 number 13, which was published on Monday the 10th of May. A copy was sent to members. The guidance has been informed by legal advice which the department received. The main messages are the best interests of the child should guide all decisions taken by staff in relation to children in their care. All children have the same rights. 
there is a duty upon schools to make reasonable adjustments for children with disabilities and not to discriminate, discriminate on the grounds of learning or physical disabilities. Reasonable force restraint should only be used as a measure of last resort and never as a form of punishment. There is a requirement to record instances of reasonable force and restraint. Current guidance does not seek to define seclusion or indicate what forms of seclusion, if any, are permissible and in what circumstances, as the issue of seclusion, including that of deprivation of liberty, is still being considered as part of the Department's review of this issue. And children should never be locked in a room or left unaccompanied and must be able to leave when they want to. The interim guidance does not fully address the issues. There is much more work to be done in this complex area. For example, one important aspect we are, we are considering is that of definitions. Another is in the context of supporting children with additional needs. The Department has received a positive response to the interim guidance from stakeholders, including from parents with lived experience. But I want to assure the Committee that the Department is pressing ahead with the review and is seized by the seriousness of the issues. We are listening to the views of parents and will in the near future be commissioning further engagement with parents and carers, children and young people. The intended approach will take account of ethical issues and the needs for signposting the services should anyone who comes forward um, requires advice or support. That's just a brief um, update, Chair, so happy to take any questions that you and members may have. Thanks for that update, Ricky, and I appreciate that the work is ongoing, to, so to a certain extent some of these issues are, are live and, and under consideration. Um, as you've mentioned, interim guidance has been issued. Is is the aim to put that guidance onto a statutory footing at the end of the process? I think, Chair, the, the process will determine the options that we will put forward to Minister, and that is certainly uh, an option that needs to be explored. Um, I'm aware of the motion um, that's come forward from the committee uh, to be debated in the Assembly, um, which is asking for statutory guidance. And I think that that is an option that we we need to explore in more detail. Um, in terms of legislation, obviously there's a time frame around any legislation that we need to be put in place for this. That does not preclude us from bringing forward more fulsome guidance on this area, and I think that's what we intend to do. But we also need to consider that if the minister decides on legislation, what is the appropriate uh, vehicle for that? Uh, and would that be new legislation or would that be an amendment to existing legislation? So they're the issues that we're starting to look at now. Okay. And can you give us any update as to progress on definitions? Um, what has become clear during the course uh, of the review, um, Chair, is that the scope of this work has um, broadened uh, and um, we now are uh, in receipt of draft policy from the Department of Health in terms of the use of restrictive practices in health settings, which quite helpfully um, includes a number of definitions. Now, I think uh, it's important that we seek to align where possible our work with the work that um, health have taken forward. Now, I stress that that is still at a draft stage. Um, not finalised. Um, but what we have found from our engagement with stakeholders on this issue that probably the number one section 
in any guidance, further guidance that we're going to issue is in the definitions and in setting out exactly what is meant by um, the various practices um, at play here. I think as well we need to go into more detail about where those definitions apply in the context of children with additional needs and special educational needs. Um, so this has become quite a multi-layered complex um, issue. Um, we've also been, uh, and I, I think we mentioned this in the briefing paper to the committee, um, you know, we've been involved in deprivation of liberty um, court cases where we um, have received further instruction from the court about providing further advice. So we need to consider whether we build that into this further advice or whether we issue um, separate advice. So again, there are other, there's another set of definitions, if you like, that we need to take account of in that context, and that's particularly in a special school um, context. So quite a number okay. of issues um, at play here, Chair. Can you, what, what is the, the deprivation of liberty court case? Well, obviously, I can't go into detail um, uh, about the, the case um, itself, but uh, just to summarise, uh, deprivation of liberty orders are issued uh, primarily by trust panels, health trust panels, in relation to um, children over the age of 16 and adults. Um, they would be uh, informed by what is in the best interests of um, that child or uh, person. We are aware of some orders um, being issued in the context of children who are currently in special schools. Um, but that is a gap for us in terms of how we support those schools uh, in how they implement uh, those orders. So uh, what's clear to us from the court case is that we need to provide more guidance and more support to those special schools where those orders are either at play or could potentially become into play in the future. Okay, and obviously an important part of the work that has been undertaken by parents and uh, indeed platformed by the committee has referenced the need for mandatory recording and reporting of all instances of restric restrictive intervention. Um, how will restraint instances be documented and recorded? I think in terms of the how, um, we haven't got to that level of, of, of detail yet. Obviously, our interim circular reminded schools that the current guidance states that schools should be recording. Um, now, in terms of more fulsome um, guidance uh, and whether that becomes underpinned and becomes statutory guidance, we will need to look at the processes that need to be put in place to capture that information. And we will, of course, be working with our colleagues in the EA in terms of the operational support that schools will be needed um, to capture um, that, that information. Um, it, it's, it, it does happen at the minute. I mean, perhaps if I invite either Andrea or Shauna to come in to talk a wee bit about um, uh, the, uh, the information gathering that they know that, that, that is going on there. Okay. Shauna? I think they might be muted. Just as they're unmuted, if I, if I could say if this answer could reference whether or not C2K would be used uh, as a recording mechanism as well, please. Thanks. Can you hear us? Yes, yes. thanks. Uh, apologies, apologies. No, 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 no. 
Um, yes, with regard, regards to the recording schools, um, you know, within the, the training and guidance, um, schools should be recording um, and reporting and including parents uh, within any incidents that happen. And they're, as we know, they're not reported centrally to the Education Authority at this point. Um, we do have records from our IOTA centres because of the management structure with IOTIS. Um, so it would be envisaged that, that when we have um, the, the clear definitions, and, and Ricky has spoken about the, the complexity with the definitions, um, that we would then be able to move to a place um, where all schools and settings are, are reporting on the same information. Um, and the same, the same um, incidents of, of, of restriction. Um, this um, could be obtained through the SIM system and, and through um, C2K, but it will be around the operational arrangements uh, and working that out and, and communicating with schools what's expected, but that we would be committed to following the, the um, conclusion of the review and, and working with schools on that. Chris, we can't hear you. That our system. Sorry, I just fell fell victim to the same problem of feeling to unmute myself. Apologies. Um, is is C two K being considered as an appropriate way to record instances? Yes, that would be one of the programs that would be considered to to record all of the information that that schools use. Okay, I, I think it's important for me to state that the the the. The reason for campaigning for mandatory recording is concern around the lack of recording and reporting that that has taken place, um, and indeed, um, also the fact that schools are asked to do self-assessments on an annual basis in relation to child protection and, and safeguarding, um, which seems to have led to a number of. Uh, breaches and a lack of accountability in in respect. So, um, you know, how, how exactly will that, if indeed it is mandatory recording and reporting as we think it should be, how exactly will that be information be independently regulated? Uh, we, we'll have to consider all that, all, all of those components, and, and it, um, it it will have to be around the, the policy and the expectation on, on schools to input the the information and the data, um, because when it is pulled centrally, we we will only be able to work with with what is presented to us and what is reported. And I think that um, the the professionalism of 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 teachers and school staff and, and the senior leadership team and, and boards of governors um, to maintain accurate records um, will be an expectation and then the, the data that is then transferred centrally we will be able to use that to inform um, any any uh, training needs requirements across the system or any individual um, support targeted support and intervention required with schools to support the needs of individual young people. Chair if I could come in on the back of that I think um, I think we need to think about this in terms of inspection and the role of ETI and, and obviously we've got ETI on our working group uh, and we're working with them very closely. Um, you know, if we're saying that schools should have appropriate policies in place, uh, that parents and children have been cited on those policies and indeed those policies have been informed by consultation with parents um, and children, then I think there's a role for ETI in terms of ensuring 
um, that the policies do exist, that the Board of Governors um, are uh, aware of the policies, reviewing the policies periodically, and indeed that they're working in the sense that rather than rather than looking at personal information, but there there are records that show that information is being gathered and it is being passed to the school leadership team and the Board of Governors. It is being looked at and it is being acted on. Okay. Yep. Uh, and I think there have been uh serious breakdowns in those types of policies and procedures um that that we'll, we'll learn more about in, in due course and and will evidence the need for statutory guidance and mandatory training mandatory recording okay keen to bring other members in as well can i bring in deputy chairperson pat sheehan mla thank you chair and I mean, I, I'm just wondering if this interim guidance is of any benefit at all. I mean, given that it's so open to interpretation, uh, I mean, I'm I'm thinking that this was just a knee-jerk reaction from the department. Would you like to comment on that, Ricky? Um, yes, Pat. I mean, obviously, I think it was yourself that raised the issue specifically at the end of February um, with us. Shortly after that session, um, we sought legal advice on the, this particular issue and uh, it took a number of weeks for us to get that advice but we did get very clear legal advice about what we could and couldn't say in any interim um, circular so I think the purpose of the circular is um, you know it has, a, it has a number of purposes but primarily it is to say that you need to keep the best interests of children at the centre of any decision making within the school, but it is a reminder of the existing guidance, what shouldn't should and shouldn't be happening. It is also saying to schools that this is a wider issue that we are looking at. And you know, our no, England, Reggie, yeah. sorry, to cut it, sorry to cut across you, but I mean, issuing guidance to say that uh, the best interests of the child should guide all decisions, I mean, uh, that should happen all the time in regard to children uh, in our schools. I, I just want to give you an example. I think I may have given, given uh, you this example before. You're familiar with the concept of stemming, uh, particularly with autistic children. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, one, one of the guidelines is to prevent pupils engaging in behavior that would be prejudicial to the maintenance of good order and discipline. We were given one example where a child was stimming. And for those who aren't familiar, uh, stimming can take a number of, of forms. It can be rapid hand movement or rocking or, or some other such behavior. And it's, it's actually used by the, the child or the person to reduce stress and anxiety. And in one particular case where a child was doing this in the classroom, uh, the child was physically restrained. Now, um, that, all that did was increase the child's stress and anxiety. Uh, and that type of behavior from the child, uh, and it's not, uh, behavior is probably the wrong word. Those characteristics or mannerisms, particularly of, uh, of autistic children can't in any way be defined as uh, being prejudicial to the maintenance of good order and discipline in the school. And if the teachers are not trained 
to spot these type of characteristics and understand that they're not prejudicial to good order and discipline, uh, you know, we're, we're in a difficult uh, situation. And I mean, I, I'm making that commentary and you can come back on it in a minute, but I, you, you've also said you've discussed this with, uh, with health trusts uh, and issues that they have had around restraint and seclusion. So let, let me give you the example of Mucklemore, which I was heavily involved in, where um, patients with severe learning disabilities were subject to uh, restraint and seclusion. There were clear and comprehensive guidelines from the Belfast Trust about when uh, restraint and seclusion should be used. And again, as has been said in this guidance, it was only to, only to be as a last resort. Uh, some patients were being put in seclusion uh, 70 or 80 times a month. There were also issues around physical restraint of patients. Uh, the regulatory body, the RQIA, well, well first of all, uh, these instances of seclusion and restraint were recorded. Uh, and they were inspected by the RQIA, and yet still that pattern uh, of use of restraint and seclusion continued. Now, uh, there may be many faults there. You can blame the individual staff. You can blame management in the, in the hospital setting. You can blame the RQIA for not uh, raising red flags when they saw how often it was being used. And you can also, which is vitally important in all of this, that senior management are held the account for their lack of oversight uh, of, of, uh, of how uh, their hospital was being managed. So, I mean, I suppose the cut to the chase, what's required here is not a set of guidelines it's not just mandatory reporting. It's not just the availability of inspection. There has to be a holistic uh, approach to this, and there has to be accountability built in to whatever approach is going to be taken. Because uh, if nobody's going to be held accountable, it will never work. It's as simple as that, and we will continue to face uh, these particular types of issues. So I wonder, would you like to comment on that? Thanks, Pat. Um, Pat, yes, thank, thanks for that. And I would agree. Um, I would agree. It, it's the coming together of all of those critical elements. Uh, and I think what that underscores for me is the fact that we need, we do need to continue with this review. We, we haven't finished yet. We have further engagement and research that we need to commission because we need to understand this from, for example, the school's perspective. Um, and we want to get further information from parents with lived experience. And we're looking at how best we can commission that research to get th that additional evidence um, that we need. In terms of accountability now, schools have very clear complaints procedures, which parents should be aware of. Uh, and there is a process there where um, things can, can go through and escalate it to the Board of Governors and where there is no satisfaction in a particular complaint, that can now be referred to the Public Service Ombudsman. And indeed, we're aware of 
um, investigations that the Public Service Ombudsman has carried out in this particular area and the findings of those. So it's important that we feed, feed that into our work. We are engaged with the Public Service Ombudsman's office and we're aware of recent um, investigations. So I think you're right. I think there needs to be accountability, ma mandatory um, recording, uh, uh, a training and clear guidance. It's the coming together of, of all of that, and that is certainly our objective in this process. It's it's a question of getting through to the end of the process. And just okay. in terms of, of international best practice, what uh, what steps are being taken to research that? So I think the, our, our neighbours in, in jurisdictions um, in the south and in the rest of the UK uh, have been taking action in this space Indeed, Scotland is still um, taking um, action and hasn't completed, uh, and it's the same um, in the south. Um, we are looking very closely at what's happening in those areas, and we, and we are taking the evidence uh, and the principles of, of what's being developed and seeing if they can be applied um, in our approach. So, um, Helpfully, um, we have been given additional evidence from the likes of the parents groups, ICARs and PABs, uh, and that will help inform our, our approach. But as I said, uh, we would like to commission further engagement with, with parents uh, and probably some form of research, which, which would, may look at a, a wider kind of international um, approach if there are other examples that we are not aware of, for example, which, which is good practice in this area. So. Um, we're very alive to the fact that this isn't a problem that just exists here, it exists elsewhere, uh, and we want to build that into our process. Okay. okay Pat. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Pat. J just, just to supplement that briefly, Ricky, how, how concerned are you that it has taken a, a Northern Ireland Public Service Ombudsman investigation to expose the failings and the inadequacies of the current guidance uh, and protections for children and young people on this matter? I think we have to be very concerned about that, um, Chris, of course. Um, we have many schools here uh, and, you know, there are internal processes within schools uh, and, you know, we, we want to provide a framework of guidance which is very clear about what can and cannot be done. Um, so where we know wrongdoing has occurred, we need to learn from that. We need to understand what has happened in that particular case, and we need to try and make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, so, of course, I would be concerned. Um, I have been concerned with some of, some of the reports that I have read uh, in this particular space. So um, we certainly aim to build that into our work going forward. I think the findings of those reports will, will shock our community. Can I bring in Robin Newton, MLA? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chair, and uh, Chair, could I just, before I start, uh, I need to leave at 12.15, so okay. I should, should have said that at the start, but anyway. Okay. I'll, you'll be on time anyway then, Robin, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, again, welcome Ricky and his new team back, uh, and I do welcome the, the fact that uh, interim guidance was sent out, and I think that was absolutely critical. And I think the, 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 the fact that, you know, we are here supporting some of our most uh, vulnerable um, uh, within our society, I think, is, is, is got to be our absolute priority as we uh, 
uh, as we do this piece of work. And I think the, the reference group that uh, you referred to, Ricky, perhaps you could give us some indication of who might be uh, members of that. Um, and and uh, if, that's, if you're able to do that, uh, and, and indeed, it's pleasing that you've started to meet with the parents' uh, action groups, and I think that's a very positive uh, step. In specific questions, could I ask you, Ricky, in terms of the, the necessary professional development for staff, whether or not that is always accredited training, because there's some suggestions that it, it isn't always accredited training, and whether or not the training that we might offer uh, to staff, uh, teaching staff, uh, support staff, is, is, could be benchmarked against international best practice. And then in, just in terms of the, uh, the necessary communication, not just with the action group, uh, action groups, but indeed communication with the parents of, of pupils, uh, uh, and indeed, perhaps if you'd comment around the ability of a physically able child, but non-verbal, uh, and, and how you might be reacting to, to those circumstances as the work is rolled out. Maybe that's an unfair question at this very early stage. Thanks, Robin, for the questions. I think I'll hand over to Julie to cover membership of the reference group, and then we'll pass over to Shauna and Andrea in terms of... Um, of the training uh, and perhaps the last aspect of your question uh, as well, if that's okay, Julie. Okay, so the me the uh, membership of the reference group is Bernardo's British Association of Social Workers, Chief Allied Health Professions Office, Children with Disabilities Strategic Alliance, the Children's Law Centre, the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland Commissioner for Children and Young People's Office, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, and the British Red Cross, um, the British Red Cross um, has since stepped back um, as this really isn't an area that they can provide any particular input into the process at this time, but they will be still keeping in touch with us um, in relation to this work. Thanks, Julie. Maybe um, Andrea or Shauna then on training. Again, don't think we can hear you, Shauna. If you're is there not me? Try again. Can you hear us now? Yes, thank you. Apologies. Um, good afternoon, uh, chair and committee members. And um, if you remember during our last committee um, presentation, the EA outlined details on some of the training arrangements in place for schools and their staff and we referenced that there is a range of whole school capacity building training available that encourages schools to establish an early intervention preventative and understanding of SEN needs, trauma-informed and nurturing approaches um, response to supporting behaviours that challenge and really to promote a culture of positive emotional health and well-being with the understanding that behaviour is a form of communication. In training that is being provided um, by the Education Authority to support schools, I think it's important to say that the training um, 
that is provided is very much about supporting staff and schools to create and improve, and improve climate for learning through explicit teaching of learning behaviours, enabling every pupil to be the best that they can be, regardless of their presenting needs, and using approaches and methodology that promotes the key principles of preventative strategies, attachment, consistency and resilience at a whole school level by implementing and um, utilising the six principles of nurture to enable children to attend schools to have a positive educational experience and achieve successful outcomes. You um, ask specifically in relation to um, a child, I think I'm correct in saying, who was physically able but had underlying SEN needs. Non-verbal. Non-verbal. Um, so in, in such instance, the expectation is that there would be a bespoke support plan in place for that individual pupil. And that support plan would be developed collaboratively with relevant school staff, with the parents and carers, and including the voice of the child. In this case, that may not be possible, but to somehow capture um, their preference of support by school staff and education staff um, that would be working with them. That plan would have to be agreed both by school and by parents. And that would include an outline of interventions and support that would be put in place to support that particular child and their, their needs. It may also involve engagement with health professionals and take on board relevant medical advice and, and support for supporting um, that particular profile of people. Can I just ask, Chair, um, in terms of the uh, continuing professional development and whether or not all training that's offered to staff, is all training accredited training? Um, well, as I outlined, um, Chair and committee members, there is a range of training. Some of that training is accredited and some of that training is not accredited. However, any training that is not accredited, that's developed on a whole, for, for a whole school delivery, would be informed by current good practice and um, would be also relevant to the needs of a particular school or profile of pupils that are being supported if it's for um, individual pupils. So it is a mixture, really, is the answer to your question, accredited and non-accredited. But if it, if it is part of the teacher's continuing professional development, then surely we would want any training offered to be accredited? For, for our teachers, um, teachers um, will engage with a range of training and, and it doesn't have the same professional accreditation that some other um, uh, other um, public professions would require in order to maintain their, their status as, as teacher and their accreditation as teacher. If that's uh, where the question is, if it's around the, the individual accreditation for the individual members of staff, it, that's, that's not required uh, for teachers to continue in, um, their practice currently. How would you, how would you benchmark then the training that you would offer if it wasn't accredited? 
Um, the, the training, the various pieces of training are, are developed either in in collaboration with um, with health and other parts of our system, um, or through a, a range of professionals. If they come from the education authority, a range of services within the education authority who will um, develop the training best based on the research and evidence in, in that particular field, and, and um, as I say, work with colleagues on, um, across SBNI or health or, or other agencies to ensure that that, that training is, is relevant to our context here in Northern Ireland and the needs of our young people in our schools. Okay, and can I just say, in terms of the communications with parents, is there always a communication with the parents after an incident has occurred? That that should be the case. That is, that is good practice and best practice, and um, and that is the right of, of the parent to have that information um, communicated to them uh, from the school. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a right to you know you aware or unaware that it is happening. Uh, we don't. We are, there, are there any gaps? In, yeah, in, we we, do, we don't collect the information to be able to say that it, you know it's it, it's absolutely happening in in all cases, um, and um, it, but it is it is that it should be happening. It is practice that it should be happening. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, Robin, just to, just quickly on the back of that, um, I, you know, I don't I don't think we can give an assurance that that is happening in every case. In fact, we can say that we know that it's not happening in every case because of the evidence that has come forward. So as Shauna uh, has said. It should be happening. So what we need to consider is how do we make sure that it does happen in our work going forward? And that's something that we're looking at. Okay, well, I thank you for that. Thank you. Um, apologies, Chair, I do need to go on. No problem. Thanks for those questions, Robin. While we're with the EA officials uh, responding now, can I, can I ask the Education Authority to tell us a bit more about the, the Education Authority Child Protection Support Service? Yes, our, our child protection support service um, is made up of designated officers who have social work uh, qualifications. Now, that service is available to all schools um, through a helpline um, for schools to call if they are concerned um, and they need uh, advice or support around um, um, a child protection or safeguarding issue. Um, we also, through that service, deliver the, the mandatory training on um, for schools for their designated teachers on child protection uh, and the guidance for the whole, whole school training. Um, as well as that, the Child Protection Support Service have, have recently implemented um, uh, child protection level one um, training for all members of e, the Education Authority. So all of our staff um, across the, the different services, be it in, in transport, be it in our behaviour support services, um, be it in our education services, um, they will um, they will now uh, be trained at level one child protection. So okay. that as concerns are raised, that they are aware of the procedures to follow. Okay, that that, that sounds like from a from a school's point of view, can parents engage with the EA Child Protection Support Service if they think their child is at risk? Yes, parents can contact the, the, the Child Protection Support Service and, and the Child Protection Support Service does work uh, with some parents um, should they, they have an issue. And what is the threshold for the Child Protection Support Service to refer 
any cases to social services? Um, there, it will de depend on the information that, that has been held, and then the the kind of there, there is likely to be a, a multidisciplinary consideration of of that situation, um, and working through the policy and guidance that we have um, as to whether something should be referred referred or not. Um, but what is important then is that we we ensure that we have the rationale as to why something has been referred or not, and that we communicate that. With, with parents or schools, um, so that there's a clear understanding from, from everyone. Do you know how many times schools have been referred to social services? I don't have that data um, available, but, but that's something that we could come come um, back to you okay. with. Okay, can I bring in Daniel McCross in MLA, please? Thanks, Daniel. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, I'll just go through the questions. I know time is tight, uh, but uh, thank you for answering so far. Uh, I was going to correct something earlier, but Ricky uh, beat me to it in relation to um, uh, parents having the, the right to know if an incident occurs, uh, and unfortunately, at the minute, they don't, and that's part of the problem. It needs to be resolved. Um, so, uh, with that said, the, the interim guidance states all instances of the use of reasonable force and restraint should be recorded. Parents, carers should be informed and follow-up support provided to the people and staff involved. So, with that in mind, what does the department have in mind when it refers to follow-up support for pupils and staff? That's the first question. Second point, as DSO has advised that reporting of restraint and seclusion is currently not mandatory, how long will it take uh, DE to legislate to make uh, recording support and engagement mandatory? And the final question to that point, how will the department monitor recording support and engagement as set out uh, in this interim policy? Thank you. If I take um, the last two points first, Daniel, and then maybe refer to EA colleagues in terms of an example of um, the follow-up that perhaps ha that they're aware of has occurred with pupils um, and staff. I mentioned earlier uh, that in terms of the time frame for legislation, um, I think that would depend, first of all, on, on the minister's acceptance that legislation um, is required. Um, uh, then we are in the process now of, of scoping potentially what the options would be around that. So I think there are two options, new legislation uh, or an amendment to existing legislation. So. Um, we haven't got through that process yet, so I, I wouldn't want to make any commitment around time frame. Uh, but obviously, the length of the mandate and so on would have to be a factor, and, and the the competing priorities around uh, existing legislative um, bills and so on. Um, your last point was about um, monitoring, and I think this is something that we want to try and tease out as part of the review to be clear about how are we going to know. Um, what's happening in this space and how effective is the guidance, uh, be it statutory or non-statutory or whatever is put in place, um, how do we know um, it's working? Um, obviously, ETI have a role, and I've mentioned that um, previously, but that isn't going to be our only source of evidence. We have, we have to think about how we gather that evidence. I think we'll need to think about our engagement with parents, with children and young people, and with schools to gather that evidence in terms of monitoring. Um, going forward, if there is a mandatory requirement to report to the EA, that of course will be a source of information that the EA uh, and the department will work um, together on uh, in terms of what needs to be done. But as part of this process, I think we need to look at what monitoring are we going to put um, in place. 
if I could ask um, Andrea or Shauna to give us an example of, of some follow-up that they're aware of in terms of uh, you know post-incident um, action that's that's been taken and follow-up with pupils um, and staff, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah Rippy, um, I suppose really, if we're talking about a post-incident situation, I mean, a post-incident situation should be a learning situation, a learning situation for all that have been involved in that particular situation. And the first thing really would be about addressing the necessary procedures um, by way of, I suppose, follow-up, if that's... If there is a need for medical support, um, emotional support, uh, be that for pupils or for staff. But primarily, one of the key focuses of a post-incident support arrangement is about restoring relationships, relationships between children and children and staff and children and staff and school staff and parents as well. Um, so part of a post-incident situation would include review of existing plans, looking at the whole situation and um, the context of how the situation came about, were there any ways that the situation could have been avoided, um, were there potential triggers that led, the led to the escalation of the situation, um, and then looking at what needs to change and what needs to be amended in existing plans. Has the child had opportunity to actually inform uh, the plans as well by way of um, how the situation could have been um, prevented? I mean, that sort of approach would be a very, uh, that would be an example of the approach that would be taken, for example, in um, primary aorta settings where children who have maybe had an incident um, where there's required a level of intervention, um, that that situation would include a post-incident um, reflective situation such as I have outlined. And I think it's about um, realising that for you know for the child and for the member of staff, it's it's um, a, a trauma for them. So approaching it with that nurturing care. Um, from from the staff team around around the child and around the member of staff and with the family as well. Okay, Dan. Uh, what additional resources is needed in relation to it? Um, well, if, if I make a start uh, and then FEA colleagues want to come in, um, I think I think that will be determined by what uh, action is is put in place, uh, and if there's additional support either needed for schools or for the EA to support schools, that's part of the consideration of the review, um, Daniel. Um, so we know that the behavioural support team within the EA is a relatively small team. Uh, under uh, under some pressure, so there probably would be a requirement to provide additional support to the EA subject to securing that funding, um, uh, and for th those teams to support schools uh, in putting appropriate policies and so on in place. So we will keep the need for that uh, in mind as we go through this process. Okay, we'll need more detail on that as we go forward. Just chair, jumping on to the next uh, question. The interim guidance advises in respect of seclusion that children should never, should never be locked in a room or left unaccompanied and must be able to leave when they want to. That's what the interim guidance is. In what circumstances is it currently acceptable to leave or lock a child 
in a room alone? And secondly, what do you say when you say a child should be able to leave when they want to? What exactly does that mean? Because it's not clear. I think, Daniel, the inclusion of that line is intended to be an immediate response to some of the issues that have been brought to our attention, particularly through the experience and the lived experience of parents and the parents groups that that we've been engaged in, Um, and also our understanding of some of the cases that have been looked at by the public service um, ombudsman. um, it's it's fairly self-explanatory in that we do not expect children to be locked um, in a room. However, you know what we have said in the guidance they accompany that statement is that we're not seeking to de- define what seclusion is because we know we have further work to do in relation to children who perhaps have additional educational needs, special educational needs, where there are rooms which are used, which are agreed with parents which are used for self-regulation. So we it's back to the point about definitions. We need further we have to do further work on that to be clear about what is and what isn't acceptable in that whole space. So that was just an initial response in in relation to the serious issues that were brought to our attention. Okay, Chair, just a final uh, question. Yeah, great, Daniel. You can move us on. Yep, thanks. Uh, the department is not in favour of mandatory autism training in case it opens a floodgate of lobbies for other conditions. What proportion of pupils would need to present with a condition for to merit mandatory training for teachers? Social and communication skills are fundamental to good experience of school. There is therefore a need uh, to acknowledge the number and distress of pupils who cannot make themselves understood. Is there a compromise position that the department can move to to equip every teacher with uh, uh, techniques and skills to alleviate this pressure? In terms of autism training, um, the department launched the framework in December around us and it was informed by our engagement with Middletown Centre for Autism and the EA's Autism um, Advisory um, service. The, the minister has been clear that you know we need to keep the, the workings of the framework under review, but it, it is a, a graduated response. Um, it, it's designed to equip uh, trainee teachers and existing teachers with a range uh, of skills, and it's incremental in terms of um, the need. So, you know, we, we took advice from the higher education institutions on this, and they felt there was a need to, to have a balance between um, autism-specific um, content and other prevalent forms. Um, of saying so, I mean, this is a needs a needs led process. So, if teachers identify um, that they have a need in this particular area, then they know they are signposted to where they can address that um, training need. But um, we're rolling out the framework. If if further work is needed in this area, then we will um, we will look at that. Okay, Daniel. Yeah, yeah I think it's clear that there is further work needed. Um, I think there's enough evidence to support that. Without. Yep. The department to recognise that, you know. But okay, thank you very much. Questions, thank you, Robbie Butler, MLA. Please, thanks. Thank you, Chair. Um, just like to to go on record, if it's okay, and thank all of those parents that have engaged uh, with each of us as individual MLAs and um, with the committee, and also the agencies that have spoken on this previously. And also, to be fair to the minister, that he, he has put this on his list of priorities. Um, to do something. So we, we, we are in a reasonably good position. However, uh, we need to make sure that we get this one over the line. Um, 
just to pick up on maybe something that Daniel was on towards the end, you guys will understand that I'm, uh, we are, we're always uh, sort of a the sum total of our experiences, and, and I always lean very heavily on my fire service stuff, which is the prevention and the intervention. So the intervention will be a lot of focus on the what what happens if uh, restraint or um, that I don't like using the word seclusion is required for either the safety of the, the the pupil or or whatever that is. But there's also the preventative piece. Daniel has touched on it perhaps a little bit with the mandatory autism training, but. I always like to also refer back that it's not just uh, autism. You know, you've got many, many children that have ADHD, for instance. And I think back to some of the successful training that, for instance, has happened in other establishments where an awareness for staff with regard to um, understanding conditions um, and uh, also perhaps not just understand uh, conditions, but also have an equipment and therapeutic environments which actually um, help de-escalate uh, issues and incidents. I'm thinking particularly of ADHD where I think it's at some of the Scandinavian schools, they have desks uh, that have like steppers on them instead of chairs. So instead of a child having to sit down and be told to sit down, they can uh, learn whilst they're standing and moving their legs almost like a skiing position. So just looking to see if there's any uh, ambition within the department to look at that uh, resourcing of classrooms in a way that is more therapeutic um, to de-escalate um, um, and to, to, you know, to, which actually improves the academic um, outcomes of children too. Thanks, Robbie. Yeah, um, certainly the use of positive behaviour strategies and indeed therapeutic strategies is within the scope um, of this review. And if that leads us um, down the road of looking at particular um, pieces of equipment or additional support that schools need, then I think we need to look at that seriously and we need to make um, those recommendations. I think as well this is where we can learn from the work that's gone on in other jurisdictions where they where they are ahead of us um, on this uh, in some cases and uh, if those similar um, resources have been put in place and they have evidence to show that they're successful then why why would we not look at that? I think that's that's common sense. Um, so yeah, um, I'm happy that the review will will pick up that um, that sort of that sort of issue. Um, brilliant. Okay. Um, then just to, to, to extend this a little bit further, just with regard to um, so if, if a child does need to be, um, I have to hit using the word just taken to another place and obviously with instances where uh, broom cupboards and things like that have been used and that's that's we've heard about those things and those have never been uh, okay but we do have an owned estate too um uh, will money be found do you think to help schools to create safe spaces that will fulfill the policy function when it is uh, developed we, we've done some work in this area um uh, for children looked after actually and have proposals around trauma-informed spaces, calm spaces and calm box and other resources. Um, you know, we're aware of good examples of sensory rooms that are in place um, as well. So yes, um, you know, I, certainly I would like, like to see those um, types of resources used where possible. Of course, all of this comes down to money, uh, as, it, as it always does. So, uh, you know, we have made bids for some resources for calm boxes and well-being boxes and trauma-informed spaces within schools from a children looked after point of view. Um, I'm waiting to hear um, on that. But if, if that is successful, then you know, that is something that we can highlight as good practice, which should, you know, which should be rolled out uh, in other schools for other children. So 
Yeah. Okay. okay no, that's, that's fine on that. Um, if there's any details in and around that, you know, what that bid and what that funding might look like, Ricky, I know it's not specifically for this, but obviously it could be extended to just to see what that burden would be. This is, this is um, my main question, if you like. Um, the relationship between teachers um, and schools and parents and carers um, is critical, and it really will be critical to the holistic care um, of, of the pupils and their children. So how will the department develop policy to promote candor, for instance, uh, with regard to uh, how things are recorded, how things are reported, um, that mechanism for that parental-teacher relationship, um, because that will be critical to, to making this a, a success. Yeah, and I, I mean, happy if others want to come in here, but I suppose that parental relationship with the school is something that, you know, shouldn't necessarily just be as a result of what we're talking about today, but should always be there for everything. Um, but in what we do, in the outworkings of this review and how it is put into practice, I think we will have to make sure that the materials, the resources, the forms, or if C2K um, is used, that parental engagement and the voice of parents uh, is at the centre of that, along with the voice of the children themselves. So I think we have an obligation to ensure that that um, happens. I don't know, Julie, if there's anything you want to say from parental point of view. The EA, the EA maybe might well, have something yeah. more to add on that. Well, just uh, just to say around the the kind of the, the the dealings with this in terms of that preventative and early intervention, that is the absolute essential that we need across all of our schools, and we have excellent practices of that where the ethos and culture is very much that that nurture and that trauma informed that um, you know the individual needs of young people. And I think we know, we know now more than we've ever known about uh, the complexities of young people through their additional educational needs, their special educational needs, um, and also through their, their traumas and their adverse life um, experiences that we, we now need to train and develop all of our professionals on to have the right approaches. And I think that the, with regards to parents um, and with regards to everything, really, if, if we focus on a relationships-based approach, and that's the relationships you know, across our schools, with our schools and our parents, with our, our uh, schools and our young people, with our parents and their young people, and with our services and our young people, if, if we focus on the relationships approach as that, as that very, very um, kind of starting point and earliest intervention, um, then, then we will see successes along. And I think that that, that um, is imperative for schools to work with parents and engage them with, with their policies and practices and responses to when things go wrong, if they do. Okay, then just to find one, just to finish this one out, and it might be the EA again who, who just finished this one out. So um, I, I would encourage that the, the, the candor and the relationships is absolutely critical and crucial here. If and when an issue does arise, is there going to be a mechanism that either on, on, a, on a level of like one, two, three, where there will be um, like a mediation service that will kick in almost immediately, the parents can do that if they aren't satisfied, um, and, that the, that, uh, and then on the next instance, maybe a complaints procedure might, might be there? Um, I suppose at this point, we, we don't have that. Um, it is through the school's complaints policy. Um, and and um, there are um, times that the parents will get in contact with the EA services and we will, I suppose, informally act as that mediator to try and solve things where, where we can between the school and the, and the parent. Um, but it's not um, an official procedure or process that's in place um, at this time. 
Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank follow, you, Chair. Following, yep. the, review, following the, the review, then then that would be picked up. Oh, right, sorry. That's that, yeah, and that's to be fair. That's what it was. Sorry, that's what I should have maybe caveated by saying in the review. Will it be picked up? Not where we are at the moment. So, um, okay. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Robbie. William Humphrey, MLA. Put in there. Maybe not. No. Okay. Then we'll move to uh, Nicola Brogan, MLA, please. Thank you, Chair, and thanks everyone for um, attending here this afternoon. I think it's been a worthwhile discussion, and it's clear that although the interim guidance is welcome, there's a lot of work still to be done, but um, I suppose it's good to be, to be discussing it. Um, the first point I'd like to ask is about well, you, we all know we've had um, briefings from parents of children who have experienced um, restraint and seclusion. And it was really difficult to listen to some of the stories, um, just thinking about how young the children are and how defenseless they are. It was very hard to listen to. And one such story was about how a child was um, restrained in a chair. Now, I just want to ask, is there any mention of um, mechanical or chemical restraint under the departmental interim guidance? And if not, why not? Um, we have chemical restraint as a medical issue. Yes. So we haven't um, looking at the issue of chemical restraint as it is a medical um, issue. So we are engaging with our colleagues in Department of Health on their review. And if that um, issue is going to be picked up there, um, the EA may, Andrea or Shauna may be able to tell us more detail about what actually happens if a child is medicated as a part of their care plan? I expect that it should be. Um, we haven't given any definitions in the interim guidance, as Ricky had said earlier, but we certainly would be looking at mechanical restraint um, within our um, final guidance on this issue. And why is the reason why it hasn't been looked at so far? Well, I, mean, I, I suppose, Nicola, the answer to that is um, it's within the scope um, of the review and the interim circular really is just saying that that's an issue that we're looking at, but here's the existing guidance. Uh, and we've also invited schools, in fact, to give us their feedback as part of the circular as well on this um, this whole issue. We, we, we were doing a review of supporting children with medication needs prior to the pandemic, and that's a piece of work that does need to continue. We've been working with stakeholders on children who have specific um, medication needs, um, you know, around asthma um, uh, and, and other uh, medical conditions, and we're working with the Department of Health on that. So there, there are other pieces of work that need to be completed um, in that space. But you know, absolutely, we need to look at the issue of mechanical restraint, and I think it comes back to um, definitions. But a lot of this, I think, will be determined by the care plans and the plans that are put in place, which should be put in place for individual children where there are specific needs. And those plans should be agreed with parents and, and the schools. And you know there shouldn't be any surprises in any action that a school takes in this particular area, because parents should be fully informed. And that's, that is, I suppose, the principle and the objective that we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, of course, parents should be fully informed, but I think it's a, that's a really important topic. The, the fact that we've heard um, 
first-hand stories of mechanical restraint, and I, I'm sure I came, you came across it too um, with your engagement with those different stakeholders. That I, like, I, I actually can't believe it hasn't been included in this interim guidance. Um, so I don't think I can't imagine that being part of any kind of care plan for a child. So it's a really important one. I think that's one that you should be prioritising. Um, I'll just move on then to autism training. We've heard before from um, different stakeholders as well that you know many parents don't actually blame the teachers or school staff or anyone involved um, with restraint and um, seclusion because they know that they, they, they haven't received the training and don't know any better um, or don't know the best way to deal in, uh, with difficult circumstances. So. Um, to be honest, I don't understand why the, um, the department and the minister isn't going forward with mandatory autism training, as um, Autism NI and Parent Action both called for. I understand Robbie's point that there are other conditions like ADHD, but surely, you know, getting trained um, in autism would help with other um, conditions as well. So maybe you could explain that to me, please. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, Nicola, there is an enhanced training framework that has been put in place since um, December and it has four levels to it. And the first level is a basic um, one day course level, which is available to all teachers, all new teachers and all existing um, teachers. And it's um, covered online and it provides um, a knowledge and understanding um, of autism. And the next level then goes into a two-day course, and then there's you know a, a third level of five-week session, and then there's a, a one-year postgraduate um, course. So it's an incremental level of training framework which is in place now. And if teachers, in agreement with their school leaders, identify that there's a need for them to access that training, then they can do that now. Yeah, well, listen, I know there is some training available, and we've again, we've had that discussion before, but it's about making it mandatory so that all teachers and school staff are equipped with the skills um, so that restraint inclusion isn't actually necessary. Um, I'd just then finally like to ask you about um, your engagement with other stakeholders, including the Children's Commissioner. So the Children's Commissioner had actually... Um, she recommended a ban on all forms of restraint for disciplinary purposes and restricted the in the best interest of the child to preventing harm. So can you tell me why the department has deviated from those recommendations from the Children's Commissioner? Um, we're obviously working very closely with the Children's Commissioner. Um, Nicola, they're involved um, in the reference group um, uh, and they have fed their views um, into this review. And in fact, um, they did write to me um, highlighting the Committee on the Rights of the Child concluding observations of the fifth periodic report, um, which did actually say that um, it would be a last resort, ensure that restraint is used against children exclusively to prevent harm to the child or others, and only um, as a last um, resort. So. Um, I think we have a balance of views that we need to um, take into account here, and that is, I suppose, the purpose of the review. We have a number of stakeholders around the table. We haven't finished our engagement. We still need to engage with schools directly and, and teaching and non-teaching um, unions on this. 
and our objective is to try and reconcile all those views and make recommendations to the minister on, on what should happen um, in this space. But I can assure you that we are working very closely with the Children's Commissioner um, on this, and indeed they welcomed the interim circular that was issued recently. Thanks, and listen, I appreciate that um, progress is being made, made on this topic, but there still seems to be a lot of work needs to be done. Um, yep. So I appreciate you to continue doing that there. But thank you all, and thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. Clark, I think that's actually us in terms of MLA's questions. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Thanks, Sam. Ricky, can you, can you give us any brief timescale in terms of you know forward work programs in relation to the, the work of the group? Yeah. Sorry, Chair, cutting across you there. Um, uh, we, we're seeking to complete this work uh, by March 22. But if we can um, get more fulsome guidance issued before then, of course, we will do that. That will be subject to um, ministerial approval. If Legislative change is required uh, as well. Then uh, you know I can't put a time frame on that. That would probably be uh, a separate um, piece of work that would follow after that. I just wanted to issue a, a clarification in relation to our last session on this in February, just to say that I wasn't clear enough to identify that this area of work was identified in 2019 um, as actually uh, something that needed to be looked at, and indeed the 1999 circular on the use of reasonable force had been identified in 2019 um, to be um, updated, and there was some preliminary scoping engagement that was done with the Human Rights Commission. Uh, there was correspondence that was received, I think, from yourself and others on this particular issue. Um, I just wanted to be clear about that. So that, Ricky, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think, um, yeah, and I don't, I don't mean this too critically. I just, I think, say the fact. I, I don't think anything is going to um, mitigate the fact that we are way, way out of date in terms of dealing with this issue. Um, I mean, I don't, I just, just state in fact, um, and, and I think that relates to. Your March twenty twenty two timescale for completion of the work as well. Um, I, I I sense a collective eyebrow raise when that date was mentioned there um, amongst committee members. And I can't even see any of them. <laughs> so uh, I mean, what? Why would this take to March twenty twenty two? Well, I mean, if we can do it sooner, we will. We haven't finished our engagement, and we want to commission further um, evidence in this area and that's going to take a bit of time um, I think this is an area where we don't have a huge amount of data and evidence so I think we need to do that before we can make informed um, recommendations and, and give the minister options in this space um, alongside that yes of course we can um, develop the detailed guidance that needs to be put in place and work on the various aspects of that and look at Training, reporting, definitions, and so on, and that's what we—that's what we're currently do, doing now. Yeah, look, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, operations at the assembly at this stage of the mandate, uh, um, and I think it's important that we're open and honest to parents, uh, children, stakeholders who are watching this matter closely. That that we are in a in a difficult context here to deliver. Um, legislation and, and policy implementation, um, but uh, that 
that can take away from the fact that the the, the substance of, of this legislation and, and policy implementation is about the protection of some of the most vulnerable children in our community. Um, so we, you, you're going to have to do everything you can to, to expedite these matters um, and, and the, to bring forward proposals that the, the parents, the stakeholders in, in this committee, um, have, we feel a moral responsibility to do nothing else other than the pressure on, on this woman. I'm sure you can appreciate that, yeah. Yeah, I understand. Um, I, I wish you, we wish you well with um, with the work that is coming ahead. As you said, with the, the Education Committee motion on the matter next Monday, look forward to um, contributions on that. Um, they're not going to be easy. Um, I understand is that NIPSO reports are scheduled this week as well. I've already heard um, harrowing parent testimony. I think those NIPSO reports are going to bring forward more harrowing findings in relation to protecting children from harm in this context and, and that, that motion um, next Monday is as much about giving voice uh, to those families that have been affected by this as it is to hear the solutions that are being worked on and that hopefully we're going to have in place in due course to, to make sure that, that that doesn't happen again. So th thanks to you and, and the EA officials for your, your updates today. We look forward to continuing to work with you on this issue. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and to add members back into the spotlight and ask the clerk to summarize any actions from that briefing. Can I also ask the, the members uh, here remain with us. I think that's Pat Flanagan, Robbie Nicola, and myself. Um, you're permitted by me to go anywhere until we, we finish this business um, or we'll, we'll lose a quorum. Okay, thanks, Clark. Chris, you need to be quick. I need to be away just before one. Okay, we'll move rapidly. Clark. Okay. Um, so, Chair, um, the committee has obviously going to take its concerns um, about um, restraint and seclusion to the uh, chamber on Monday and rehearse those in full. Um, the uh, main points that came up just now that we would want to follow up um, with, the, with the department and EA are, uh, for EA, really what the roles and responsibilities of um, the Child Protection Support Service um, are um, and how you know parents can use that to uh, complain, to report, to um, like parent action and, and those other organisations have done to be activists about this issue and keep it um, uh, high up the, the department's agenda. Um, what the threshold is then for that uh, support service um, to refer a complaint to social services um, and the specific question then of how many times um, a referral um, has been made against a school um, or a school staff or a board of governors to social services. Um, Great. Then, yeah. Great. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Um, then the, the department had taken several uh, measures since uh, the, they last briefed the committee. Um, so the interim um, guidance was something that the committee had requested. Um, and the committee had also asked that the department should engage with parent action and those um, parent carers um, who had presented. And they have done that in several ways. But the committee might want to know just a bit more about 
that engagement um, and how that will continue going forward. Okay, agreed. Yeah. Okay, agreed. and then. Um, great. Thank you, uh, Deputy Chair. So then uh, I think some of the points that were also made were just to stress the need for inclusion um, in guidance um, of what to do in respect of mechanical or, or chemical restraint, um, because those were part of the parent testimony um, that came over, and also to re reiterate the committee endorsement of mandatory autism training, just in terms of um, giving it that priority that all uh, teachers will be given time to to take it um, and maybe it should be rewarded or accredited in some way um, to help roll that out okay yeah members agree content with that yep content content okay members move us to agenda and seven correspondence briefly can i refer you to page three five items of correspondence and a summary note at page 34. Item seven, I got through this, Mark, as long as you keep me right. Item 7.5 on page 54 is a copy of correspondence to the Minister from the Raise Your Voice campaign, calling on the Minister to urgently introduce enhanced uh, relationships and sexuality education. Are members content to have a close read of correspondence noted? And I think really we, we ought to be considering an education committee motion on this matter as well. Mem members content to, to do that for now and we'll return to that item? Yep, content to chair. Okay. Yep. 7.6 on page 65 is corresponds from parents of pupils at Kalinchi Primary School raising concerns regarding the conduct of the uh, current Board of Governors and dysfunction relating to uh, a relationship and sexuality issue. Um, members uh, content uh, to... Um, Sorry, uh, okay, um, let me see. Okay, Wait. Clark, did you have an action in relation to this in terms of, of forwarding this to the department? Yeah, yeah to see the guidance. The correspondent has asked that we send it to the department, and then we all, I also thought we should maybe signpost to EA regarding curriculum complaints tribunal and recommend as well that the correspondent contact constituency MLS. Yeah, okay, yeah. So members content to forward that corresponds to the Department of Education to ask what uh, accountability mechanisms are available in relation to the conduct of the Board of Governors, and then also to recommend that the parents um, be signposted to that EA. Agree? This, this, is, this is obviously a pretty serious issue, members. I, mean, I think it's actually signposting us towards a, a more wider concern around the appointment processes for boards of governors and the accountability processes and, and support processes uh, in relation to board of governors that again we can return to at, a, at another time but if we if we take those actions on behalf of those parents in terms of forwarding the correspondence to the DE and um, signposting to the DA curriculum uh, complaint service and then uh, be copied in on any responses in case we can provide any further. Content? Agree? Agree? Great. Okay, thank you. Uh, Clark, any other correspondence to which you need to refer there? No, that's fine. Okay, and then in terms of forward work program members, um, 
Park, any quick comments in relation to four work program? Yeah, just a, just a couple of updates. Um, GPC next week, legal services will advise about privilege at the start of the meeting and any issues relating to whistleblowers. Um, then we'll have CCEA on the 2nd of June, as discussed earlier. Um, on the 9th of June, we're going to have voluntary sector outdoor centres alongside DE's briefing on emotional well-being. Um, and um, then on the 23rd of June, DE has confirmed that it will provide a briefing on area planning. Um, in respect of my life and learning in lockdown, um, our, our members agreed that the committee will publish a short report on, on the youth engagement and debate it in the House in due course. Agreed. 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 Okay, and so if you're content with those other um, forward work program items that I described, then we're done. Forward work program agreed, members? Agreed. agreed. Okay, agreed. any other business? No. No, okay then, uh, next meeting, uh, next Wednesday, 26th of May, at earlier time of 9 a.m. Committee meeting does not adjourn. Thank, Thank you. you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber.